listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Big Willie and the Samurai, bringing class to trash since 1977. everybody, welcome to episode 12 of the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. I'm your host, the Samurai, and across the border from me is my good pal, Big Willie. Hello. Hello, hola. Hola. <laughs> no French-Canadian that... speak this morning, eh? No, uh, it's a little too early for that. No <laughs> disrespect to the Quebecois, but... Uh, and there won't be, and I don't think there'll be, sadly, any Blackberg Swedish uh, talk this morning. Yeah, no Swedish films this week. Uh, no Blackberg. And no uh, bonjour. So. None of that. <laughs> so here we are, episode 12. Uh, I want to go over a couple things. Uh, we uh, still you know, are in allegiance with the, uh, the DonorsChoose.org uh, program going, over on, uh, going on over in, uh, at PopSyndicate.com uh, uh, with the Pop Syndicate group. Uh, you'll hear more about that later. And now that I have an uh, interesting voicemail from an individual who will sound very familiar to most of you. Also, saying that about the popsyndicate.com, uh, make sure you guys head over there, join up on the forums, be a part of the community over there. A lot of good shows over there. I can't type them enough, to be honest with you. Also, you know, there's our Facebook group. There's our MySpace page. Uh, we're starting to get a little bit more hits on the MySpace page, so we're trying to keep that up a little bit more. So we'll uh, keep trying to. You know, it's myspace.com slash the gentleman's got to midnight cinema. Very long url but uh we'll try to keep that caught up a little bit more i'll try to the email and the voicemail here you know the voicemail is 206-666-5207 the email is at midnightcinema gmail.com and there was a couple other things we wanted to mention wanted oh. to mention that w- w- yeah, go ahead oh, i was gonna say paris cinema magazine but i'm sure oh yeah 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 that. yeah we're gonna mention paris cinema we kind of sometimes we we get these uh you know these intros going then we think okay we got everything covered and then when i'm doing the editing or when we go back and listen to the show we're like oh Whoop, we forgot to do that so this is one of those situations we do want to mention Paris Cinema Magazine we didn't mention them uh, last week and uh, we didn't do a, as uh, Dylan would say an infomercial uh, for them last week so uh, we do want to mention I did get my other two issues by the way I don't know if I told you that I did get my other two issues and uh, I read the issue one I haven't read issue uh, three yet but I read issue one and uh, good stuff in there man yeah I would. I don't even need to say oh how was it because I admittedly know how it is it's first class oh yeah good stuff yeah. there's an article in there about uh, Kroll which is an awesome, oh, it's awesome nice. article talking about how Kroll kind of tried to capture both fantasy films and Star Wars at the same time, and uh, depending on your outlook, either failed miserably or it's awesome. So yeah, I'd have to. That might warrant actually a revisit because I, I think I was telling you before I saw that in theaters with my dad. Being a big fan of ninjas and so forth as a kid, the bone kind of ninja star weapon that that's in the film uh-huh. uh, kind of lured me in. But I think it'd be right for a revisit because since then I've only ever seen about twenty minutes. Uh, of the film as an adult, I think it was where um, the Cyclops uh, and I think Liam Neeson. I think he's in it, if I remember correctly. Yes, he they're, is. They're, they're riding on horseback uh, somewhere, and that's all I really. That's only the part I caught as an adult. But yeah, it's uh, really good. Uh, good for uh, '80s tight pants too. A lot of tight pants in that movie. So. <laughs> a lot of bulges. Yeah, a lot of a lot of uh, moose knuckle moving around in there. So. <laughs> 
So Paracinema Magazine, make sure you check them out, guys. They're over at Paracinema.net. Uh, very high-class magazine. Uh, I quite enjoy it, so I'm sure most of you guys out there that like magazines and genre cinema, you'll dig it, too. Also, I wanted to mention the uh, Sean's, uh, Sean from Chicago, his uh, website again, horrorcommentary.com. Uh, we are going to have an interview going up on there. We just uh, we haven't had time to get around to it, but we now have time. I'm, well, I know I have time, so we're going to get that up, and uh, you guys can check that out. But head over there and check out his site anyway. It's a good little site, and uh, I go over there at least at least once a week, but usually about once every couple of days, see what's going on. Yeah, as do I, and I'm going to make the time to get uh, yeah to get the interview done. And yeah, that should be, uh, I guess, barring anything epic, uh, should be up there probably relatively sh- shortly. And as soon as it is and we catch wind of it, we will let you guys know to go check it out. And if you haven't been on Sean's site, it'd be a good opportunity for you to be on his site. A good gateway, I guess, into it, because it is a good site. Yeah, it definitely is. And uh, we are going to be uh, covering uh, a little film from 1987, I think. Six. 86. Oh, there you go. Well, depending on the hair, you really can't tell the difference between 86 and 87. The lines are blurred. <laughs> yeah. Between that and cut-off sleeves on shirts and jackets. There you go. <laughs> a little film uh, by a director named Martin Dolman, a.k.a. Sergio Martino, who uh, made a little action epic known as uh, Hands of Steel, which we'll go over some of the alternate titles because they're pretty awesome when we go over the review. And uh, another film by... a Another certain master of a different sort, one Sam Peckinpah called Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. So those are our two films for today. Should be some interesting discussion. We'll have feedback and all that good stuff as well. Anything else you'd like to add here at the beginning here, Will? No, not that I can think of offhand. We probably forgot something, but that's okay. We'll just make up for it next week. So we apologize if we did forget anything. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. All right, so with all that being said, I'll go to first break here, and we will be right back with our first review. What's up, kiddies? You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, the only show crazy enough to tackle the Brian Bosworth classic Stone Cold. back turn that down a little bit there well yeah yeah yes good stuff karen O from the yeah yeah yeahs she's one of those girls that she sounds to me anyway really sexy when she sings she got a real sexy voice yeah 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 she she could be uh sexy on stage and stuff she's an odd she's an odd looking bird but she's uh you know she, she, she's all right she works it yep definitely a very interesting person uh, okay so we're gonna go over our first film uh which is 1986's hands of steel so i'm gonna send it over to you since you picked this film and uh let you synopsize and give some brief info on it and then we'll get talking about it i would be glad to finally we get to review hands of steel i'll say right up front this one is not sadly on dvd on and in any capacity other than sort of a gray market um uh, from a gray market standpoint and you can't find it through there so if after a review any of you are compelled to look for it on dvd don't buy it from a legitimate dvd vendor like amazon or deep dvd discount or any of these because what's happened and this is actually what happened to me i actually bought this movie on vhs for 25 cents i guess in the beginning of the summer and um i'll say it's the best 25 cents i've ever spent 
Um, <laughs> yeah. Most definitely. Um, but I told Sammy, I said, God, you got to see this film. You got to see this film. You got to see this film. And we just could not find it anywhere. And I didn't really want to FedEx a VHS tape because I don't think he has a, v- a VCR on hand at this point. And I would just check every week or so. And uh, I'd found a website. I think it was even Amazon that, that sold it um, under a different... What was the title it went by, Sammy? Do you remember? Fugitive Lovers. Yes. And the cover, <laughs> I think, is sort of this yellowish cover with uh, an outline of a face on it in the background. And then it looks like two people running in the foreground. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. It's very... Probably one of the most generic covers I've ever seen. Yeah, it really is. Um, but if you see that, do not buy it because I bought it for Sammy and had it sent to him as sort of a little gift, thinking and hoping it would be Atomic Cyborg, despite because it even says it has all their names and you know, Sergio Martino and Daniel Green, etc. It's not the film. So if you're going to find this film, you're going to have to track it down through gray market means or something to that effect. So yeah, I just wanted to get that. Unfortunately, that's the only, the only way you can really get a hold of it at all. Yeah, which is uh, regrettable. You'd think that you know one of these grindhouse releasing or Brentwood or or one of these uh, lower end companies would even do a VHS transfer. But no one has, which is odd. And I just I wanted to get that out before I forgot. And someone went and bought the thing and wasted their money. Um, but that being said, the film itself, Hands of Steel, aka Atomic Cyborg, aka Return of the Terminator, aka Fists of Teal, Fists of not Teal. Uh, that would be maybe a Prince record or something. Uh, Fists of Steel, aka a Vendetta del Futuro. Now I read the synopsis for this one, and it's kind of lame, but I'll read it anyway. It's uh, it says a story about a cyborg who is programmed to kill a scientist who who holds the fate of mankind in his hands. It's kind of a short, very short uh, synopsis. It's more of a Terminator meets Robocop meets Over the Top meets with a sprinkle of Roadhouse. um, (laughs) A dash of coming of age through this cyborg man. And I don't know, uh, I think that kind of summarizes it to a degree. Anything you'd like to add to that summary or... No, no, I mean, basically in my notes it says uh, I have a mashup of Terminator Over the Top and The Six Million Dollar Man. <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. Um, so, without further ado, uh, I had picked this and I've been, ever since I've seen it, uh, because I remember as I first watched it, I said to my wife, who actually sat through a good portion of it, I cannot wait for Sammy to see this. So, what did you think? Well, Hands of Steel. This is one of those uh, films that, you know, totally you overlook for years. Uh, I never even paid any attention to it, to be honest with you. It's one of those, uh, it probably was in the video store at one point when I was growing up uh, in 86, 87, I was, guess I was 13, 14, but I probably just overlooked it because it didn't have any big stars in it, and it really doesn't unless you're a B-movie fan, have any big stars in it, because uh, you do have George Eastman in it, but uh, yeah, Daniel Green, ne- Daniel Green never got uh, very popular, And but you know, he did have one movie where he was a star here and this is it and we'll talk about danny here in a little while uh okay so this is made by sergio martino who uh anybody that knows me on the boards knows that i am a fan of martino i'm a big fan of his giallos i think he is the giallo guy but uh you know i get i get a lot of i'm not going to go into that too much because i get ragged for that quite a bit but i do think he is a very talented guy and uh you know uh, as other shows have echoed and other people have echoed, if you guys haven't seen uh, his Torso film, do yourself a favor and check that out. Uh, there's a lot of other good stuff, but Torso's a great place to start. And this film, he goes by Martin Dolman. Yeah, you know, I mean, I don't know why they decided to change his name, I guess because they wanted to make this an American film. It's very American anyway, in uh, spirit. I don't know where it was shot exactly, but the music from the film is from one Claudio Simonetti, who uh, I think I'm correct in saying most people are probably familiar with him, so I really don't have to go over him. Not most people, but most people who listen to these kinds of shows and watch these kinds of films probably know who Claudio is. So and This is some pretty good stuff by Claudio, by the way. I mean, some uh, like the opening. Uh, it, it's basically the love theme throughout the film, but uh, they play it over the opening of Homeless People for some reason but whatever i mean it it works you know (laughs) 
very interesting stuff. <laughs> Let me say before you get off uh, Simonetti's score is this score to me sounds very reminiscent of his score for uh, Demons, the Lumberto Baba film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what it reminded me of too. Which is funny you mentioned that because I believe uh, Stil- Stivaletti uh, did the uh, effects, effects for this on film, that. and of course he did the effects for Demons. Yeah, and he's also on uh, Argento's latest film. He's working on Giallo. He's worked on quite a few uh, of uh, Argento's later stuff, uh, but he is on uh, Giallo as well. So there is some connections to this film quite a bit. I think let's let's talk about Daniel Green a little bit. Now he doesn't need to be the most emotive actor in this film, but I would have I would have given my right arm for a little bit more emotion. Uh, uh, there's some scenes where the emotion is really, really, really dialed back. And uh, he comes off as pretty stoic and pretty, you know, stone-faced. And that's not to say he's not entertaining in the film, because he is. There's a lot of great shots of him just reacting and stuff with a slight Elvis curl of the lip. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he's always, uh, you know, shiny and sweaty, that uh, Italian thing that I love so much. You know, they always make sure that either one, they spritz them real well before the scene starts shooting, or it's actually really that hot on the set. So he has an, uh, some interesting uh, reaction shots. And he has, some, he has a pretty good couple good moments of dialogue. Uh, which I'll go over some of the dialogue here in a minute because there were some things I found kind of funny. I don't know if you noticed, but there's a little bit of serendipity here that one of the characters in the film was named Dr. Peckinpah. Of course, I wrote that down. <laughs> you know, it seems like every week when we do the show, we pick two films that could not possibly have any relation whatsoever. Like when we did Cobra and uh, Roller Boogie and there was the, the parasailing roller skating uh, <laughs> instrument. And sure enough, we do a Peckinpah film this week and there's a character named Dr. Peckinpah. If it had been Sam Smith or Sam Jones, and there was a Dr. Jones, Dr. Smith, it wouldn't have mattered, but it has to be intentional <laughs> if you're going to call a character Peckinpah, because outside of Sam Peckinpah, I've personally never heard the name. No, I mean, he's the only Peckinpah I know of, and uh, I'm assuming Martino must have been a fan, just decided to name the Dr. <clears throat> Dr. Peckinpah. So. I didn't notice any other director names in any of the other characters, so it, it, it is an odd choice. Maybe it was... Maybe it was the writer. I don't know. But I was kind of hoping after I heard Dr. Peckinpah, I was like, well, I got to pay attention to everybody's, you know, maybe this is like a, a Joe Dante or a John Landis film. Maybe all the characters are named like Dr. Hooper and Dr. Landis and yeah, Mr. Dante, you know, and stuff like that. You know, little, you know, little inside jokes, but I didn't hear any other ones. Yeah. Let me say that this film is definitely one of those, you know, check your brain at the door type films. I mean, that's not to say it's not good because I enjoyed it quite a bit. It is a great film for having people over. I think me and you had talked about this. Uh, this is one of those, uh, you can call them whatever you want, beer and pizza movies, uh, you know, beer and whatever you decide to eat. A couple guys over, friends, hell, even you know, even uh, females over it. It's very entertaining, and you got to get a hold of it, first of all. But if you can get a hold of it, it is one of those good, like, party films. Like when Bill and them did that uh, party film list, this definitely would have jumped up on my list now because uh, this is one of those ones where you just have a, you would have, I would have, I unfortunately had to watch it by myself. So, and I still had fun watching it by myself. So I can imagine if I'd have had my brother around or a couple of friends around we would have just had a blast and i know you had told me that you had uh, quite a bit of fun watching it yourself or with people well yeah that's the thing i noticed was uh, i had first watched it with uh, a very like-minded friend of mine uh, a newfie friend of mine for those of you in canada you know what a newfie is he, i watched it with him actually on his birthday it was uh, one of my little birthday presents for him uh, i had some cake and barbecue to steak and we watched uh, hands of steel and his girlfriend was a trooper she watched the whole thing and got right into it nice. um and it it does definitely lend itself well to a group setting because you can riff on it back and forth and it's it, I think I've even I may have said this to you before uh, Sammy sometimes even when you watch comedy
party. It's it's sort of a communal thing because people start laughing, you start laughing, and just with how insane and you know over the top some of the stuff, no pun intended, uh, the stuff in this film is, <laughs> it does lend itself well. And and I enjoyed it watching it myself last night, but yeah, it wasn't the same as as watching it with some pe- some like minded friends. Yeah, I mean it, it's a bare bones plot, and and because it's a bare bones plot, you can do that. You can you could talk during almost this whole film, and you would never lose track of the story because it's a pretty simple plot. You know, it's basically it's basically probably got more in common with Terminator plot-wise than uh, any of the other films we talked about. Uh, maybe, maybe more like Terminator 2, because he's kind of a troubled cyborg. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. I mean, it's, it's a bare-bones plot, but it, it's pretty simple. Now, all that being said, let's let's talk about the lead character, Daniel Green. Let's talk about the decision to name this character. Let's. So, <laughs> the writer or director or whomever decided that the name for the hero of this film should be one Paco Kurek. Uh, I think I'm saying that right. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, yeah, Paco Querek or Kerak. Querak. Yeah, that's <laughs> one of the most difficult names to say in cinema history, probably, and uh, one of the oddest names for a hero in a film ever, Paco. <laughs> I couldn't stop laughing anytime that uh, Linda would say Paco. Yeah, yeah it's <laughs> really odd choice for a name. I mean, I think I said to you, it sounds like a cross between uh, a love child of like a Hispanic and a Ferengi or something. <laughs> You know, Querek and then Paco, of course, being a, a Hispanic-sounding name, and yeah, it was just a bizarre choice. Yeah, Querek does sound like a Ferengi name, like uh, you know, Quark, I think, was the one, and then Querek would be fitting right in there, like his brother or something. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, they you know they decided to go with Paco, which is a this is a strange choice altogether. Uh, this one actually has uh, John Saxon in it uh, in a very uh, well. I mean, it's not a small role; it's a prominent part, but it's uh, typical of Saxon's work sometimes in this period where he just kind of you know shows up for a day or two and shoots all of his stuff and then uh, you know disappears but uh, he's still he's still John Saxon in it he still you know brings the Saxon when he when he's on the screen you know and he's still intimidating with the uh, one of the most brutal comb overs in cinema history <laughs> and uh, he still brings it man he's, he's a lot of fun in this uh, he does chew the scenery a little bit like he's no he's want to do yeah he is and, and you know most of his scenes are shot behind a desk yeah it must have been like two days I even wrote that down he must have been on set for like two days one day shooting his phone scenes um where he's on which is a great phone by the way oh it's a yeah it's a great sort of portable phone i think before portable phones existed uh or maybe they had been around i don't know but it it, yeah it was supposed to look futuristic because this is sort of a post-apocalyptic movie you know and then as is uh, par for the course you know it's set in the not too distant future so they can kind of explain away a lot and actually they're smart now that i think about it because they explain away uh, people using wood and and a lot of that stuff because there's uh, a reverend who wants people to sort of get back to basics and and take care of mother earth and stuff uh you know use wood and and all that stuff so i think they kind of were smart in explaining away how 1986 everything looked yeah yeah you know speaking uh, of uh the wood all right, here we go. Something I noticed about this film was I felt, and maybe again, this goes by the way back to our Rolling Thunder coverage in episode one. <laughs> uh, I felt that there was a bit of sexual innuendo in this film and some of the dialogue. Now, I'm just going to say a few of the lines I have here, and uh, you you can react however you want to react. Uh, first thing, uh, at one point she asked him to uh, chop some wood, and then he comes into uh, the kitchen area, looks at her kind of, uh, you know, passionately, and asks her, you know, where's the wood? And uh, the reaction on his face to her and her face gave me the impression that, you know, under d- different budget circumstances, Daniel Green might have dropped trial right then and there. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Because he, you know, he takes his shirt off every time he gets an opportunity. And he is a physical specimen. Don't get me wrong. This guy's he's a beefcake, to say the least. Let, Go ahead. Sorry, Sammy. Let me say this. He does take his shirt off. And I counted how many scenes Paco Querick is shirtless and oiled up. There are six scenes with Paco shirtless. And it's only like an 85-minute movie. So I don't know. Do the math. I'm not very good at math. 14 minutes or 15 minutes or so. Every 50 minutes, you get a, we get the treat of a, a shirtless Paco Querick. And six in 85 minutes sounds impressive but what's even more impressive is all six of those come within 60 minutes so really not even 10 minutes go by where this beefcake isn't shirtless oiled up doing something he's kind of like daniel green reminds me is he's and this is really i don't know if this is a compliment or if it's an insult but he's kind of like the poor man's lorenzo Lamas. <laughs> he's a little brawnier than uh Lamas from what i recall though yeah he's he's a little bit more you know uh i guess you know i can't i can't think what the word i might want to use is but that's what he reminded me of i mean the cover if you guys look up the cover of this on imdb or anything it almost looks like lorenzo Lamas on the cover when i first saw the cover when uh willie contacted me about it uh, i thought okay well this is a Lamas picture i'm gonna love this because i love me some uh, low budget Lamas, you know so but it's not Lamas on the cover it's actually supposed to be daniel green but if you guys look at the cover i swear to it looks like Lorenzo Lamas and more than Daniel, it looks like Daniel Green. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that was a Japanese cover. Um from what I recall. I'm assuming it's a Japanese cover because I've seen Japanese covers of other awesome Bruno Mate stuff um in films similar to this and and that looks like uh, very Japanese to me based on what I've seen or stuff that yeah. was released in yeah. in that market. Yeah, it's a great it's a great I'd love to have a full size poster of that. Oh, would I ever. <laughs> in fact, I'm I I uh John Saxon was at the Festival of Fear for Rue Morgue here in August, and I was so excited because I had a copy of the VHS. And uh, what I wanted to do was I wanted to take my VHS uh, cover. I took it to Walmart, and I tried to get it scanned into, like, 8x10 size. I was going to have him sign it. And, in fact, I was going to have him sign one and send it over to Hans, our good buddy, um, because I knew he was a big fan of the film, and, and I figured he'd get a kick out of it. Needless to say, I couldn't scan it. It wasn't scanning properly. Uh, so I took the case, and I was like, piss on it. I'll just send it to Hans and keep the tape. And uh, the lineup for Saxon was like five hours long, and it was at the end of the day, so I didn't even get to meet the Saxon. But uh, just a little side note there. But no, that, that's a, it's a great cover. And if I ever see a poster, or anyone ever sees a poster online that's reasonably priced, please let us know because this will be going up in the uh, Gentleman's Guide North Studio uh, promptly. <laughs> yeah, the North Studio, yes. <laughs> I was just uh, you know thinking about it in my notes here. You know, the, this film, like I said before, it's a very bare bones plot, but it actually took about six people to write this film, which is kind of amazing when you think about it uh i don't know why it took about six people to write this film i really don't but it's one of those things where you know i'd, I'd imagine that uh, you know one pass was done then it was given to somebody else to do another pass and one of those things and even martino himself is credited as a writer so there's probably some ideas of his in here uh so there's some good stuff let me go over some and speaking of the writing like i said let me go over some more of the sexual into i talking about uh there's a scene where they ask uh the good reverend uh any details and he just says this this line here it felt hard extremely hard Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> Which, you know, taken out of context, could, uh, you know, there you go. And there's another scene where George Eastman, the immortal George Eastman, uh, he's playing a character named Raul Morales, an Italian playing a uh, Spaniard or Mexican here, wants Linda to kiss the winner, but he says wiener. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, I don't know if you yeah. noticed that, but he's like, I think we need to kiss the wiener. I'm sure Linda would have been willing to kiss. Uh, I'm sure she's kissed both wieners, quite frankly, <laughs> because she was Raul's girl uh, before Paco came to town. And, it was and one, let's, 
that, that wiener line was one of those situations <laughs> where I was eating something and I was, you know, looking down at my plate and I, and I heard him say, come here, Linda, kiss the wiener. And, and I look up like I'm getting ready to spit, you know, liquids all over the uh, living room floor. <laughs> nice. <laughs> And I'm Just not too tip. I'm not too far off of my impression there either. That's the way Eastman <laughs> talks. If that's really him and not a dub voice, that's the way he talks throughout this whole film. Hey, you Paco. Yeah, I, <laughs> it's pretty pretty bad. <laughs> then there's a scene where Linda comes into the, one of the rooms she's given uh, Paco to stay in, and uh, he uh, basically says, with her reaction shot only, don't show him saying this. Says, uh, "Linda, I want to show you something. Please don't be afraid." Now, I wrote that line down. <laughs> yeah, that might be <laughs> that might be my perversion, but I you know I've seen enough adult films in my life to know that uh, usually when that line comes it's not longer after that that the big leather belt comes undone yeah and you notice that the star has gone commando so yeah. there you go <laughs> you hear the thunk as it hits the floor and rolls out like a red carpet and not that uh, daniel green probably wouldn't uh, be proud to do some of that stuff uh he doesn't really do anything although i did find odd and i talked to you about this that he pops up in almost every Farrelly brother movie which is just the weirdest thing that this guy goes from hands of steel and i guess falcon crest and some tv shows a lot of tv credits in his uh in his uh resume and he just pops up in Fairly Brothers movies now. Now I can't tell you any of the roles. I think the roles like, you know, Waiter One and things like that, but for some strange reason he pops up in a lot of their movies and uh, I'm guessing it's just a friendship thing because they like to use the same actors over and over and over again. Yeah, he was in uh, just looking here because while we're on him I did want to mention a few other credits of his uh, he was in Kingpin, Something About Mary, Me, Myself and Irene, Shallow Howl, Stuck on You, Fever Pitch. I- I'd love to go back and see those if for no other reason like I was saying to you than to just keep an eye out for him. Oh, yeah, I wonder, sorry, I wonder he, if he's still he, taking care of himself. I wonder if he's still the big buff Daniel Green or if he's kind of a chubbier Daniel Green now. Well, that's a good point. I, I mm, It's hard to say, you know. It's hard to say. I mean, I will say this. Don't rent or watch your copy of Something About Mary uh, looking for him because I just saw that his scene got deleted. Yeah, yeah, it might be on the, there might be some deleted scenes on the DVD. I don't know. I don't have it. So now, before we get off his resume, I did see a few films that uh, I wasn't aware of that I would love to check out at some point. He did a, f- a couple films with one of my favorite. Uh, he did another Martino film actually uh, called The Opponent. I believe it's a boxing movie. Nice. Um, it's got Ernest Borgnine in it. Oh, uh, Mary Hello. Staven, uh, Giuliano Gemma, Keely Shea Smith, who is uh, Pierce Brosnan's wife, I believe. Boxing movie, uh, and then a couple movies with maybe my favorite Italian genre director Enzo Castellari. Striker, which was directed by Castellari, written by Umberto Lenzi. Um, <laughs> so he's in that. And it's got a couple other genre favorites. It's got, uh, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, Werner Polkath. Don't know how to say his name. John Steiner. And the big one, Hammerhead uh, by Castellar. He actually plays uh, the titular character of uh, Hammerhead. I'm guessing he went over there probably to just try to, you know, kind of get his uh, star going. I mean, I, he made all TV pretty much, and then he made a film called Stitches, which I don't know if it's a comedy or a horror film. Mm. Then it looks like he went to Italy at that point. And, uh, well, he did some Falcon Crest, but then it just looks like he went to Italy because this Weekend Warriors film, which has an awesome alternate title, is Hollywood Air Force. Yes, that was a great title. I saw that on there. <laughs> but then the, all these films, like Weekend Warriors, Skeleton Coast, Quokuno uh, Paghera, which is that the opponent, or Uppercut Man, which is an even better title. Uh, yes. Running Combat, that Soldier of Fortune. There's actually a lot of stuff in here I would actually... Oh, I've actually seen Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. That's that's weird. I didn't know he was in that. What was his role? Does it say? Uh, Bob Redding. <laughs> nice. 
And then he was in a film called Mal de Africa, which is also known as Beyond Kilimanjaro. That actually sounds pretty interesting, too. I don't know. I might have to look into some of this stuff now, because now I have to say after seeing this film, I am a Daniel Green fan. As am so I. <laughs> I'm going to have to definitely check out some of this stuff. Was there more uh, porno talk? Uh, from no, I think that's the end of the porno talk. Actually, there probably was more, but after Wiener, I pretty much was done. So, <laughs> But uh, let's talk about George Eastman a little bit, who pops up as a truck driver here, maybe the tallest truck driver in the history of cinema. Yes. Uh, he... Some of you guys may be familiar with Eastman. Uh, from uh, one of his more notorious roles, which is uh, Anthropophagus, uh, a film that Cinema Diabolica covered uh, where he eats a fetus. I don't think I'm giving anything away there, am I? No, I think everyone, listen, if you're going to watch that film, it's because of the lure of the, the fetus eating, you know, amongst other things. It's That's the kind of film it is. I don't think Yeah, it's a Joe D'Amato. Well, it's actually some of his better work. I mean, not like it's a, a terrible film. So well, it's not great, but it's not terrible either. And that's but yeah, he's, a, he's the uh, titular uh, Anthropophagus in that, which is basically means cannibal he is the uh he is the cannibal he's pretty freaky in that though i remember dz talking about it when they reviewed it how the guy was just so freaky looking but eastman's uh he's got a unique look to him he either plays a beefcake or a bad guy in almost every film he's in or usually kind of a beefcake bad guy really i guess it's kind of a slash role he usually plays yeah but he's huge i mean he's a gigantic gentleman i mean he's not uh not small by any means no and he's got a you know yeah a really storied resume he did a trinity film uh some of the early django films um, rabid dogs. Yeah, I mean, you'd mentioned he did a couple post-apocalyptic ones. He's uh, he's a lot of fun uh, in this film, as you'd mentioned, amongst other things, his uh, terrible Hispanic accent. Uh, he's quite a, a a snake, you know, in this film. Sore loser. He because basically, I don't know if we'd said this. Uh, Paco um, decides that he he tries to assassinate this uh, scientist, and he at the last moment something a twinge of humanity sets in, and he doesn't kill him. But what he does is he has this move where he crosses his arms and kind of claps the back of his hands. Uh, people's yeah, I call heads it or, I call it the X slap. The X slap. Yes. So what he does is he 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 doesn't kill this uh, this reverend. Um, character and he, he decides he's going to go soul searching in the deserts of Arizona because he's from Arizona and he ends up at this truck stop and uh, the truck stop that uh, Linda owns and uh, Raul was Linda's uh, flame until uh, of course Paco came in I just wanted to say that because I didn't know if we'd said that but yeah no Eastman's uh, Eastman's good in it for sure I really liked him in it oh he's real good yeah it, it turns into and you know I had known this because I had talked to you about it and stuff but it's weird because it starts out as a post-apocalyptic cyborg movie actually you don't know he's a cyborg for a while until the film but it you know one of the alternate titles is atomic cyborg so we're not giving anything away he uh it eventually turns into a that's where we get the over the top stuff it eventually turns into an arm wrestling movie it's out of nowhere either i mean it just all of a sudden it becomes you know they're looking at a wall of arm wrestling champions it's just a really weird plot device uh i think the the main champion his name is uh anatola blanco blanco yeah he's the tri-state champ oh yeah tri-state so i don't know what the, i don't know what other states they're talking about but he's actually the tri-state champ <laughs> <laughs> Played by an actor named Darwin Saswalv, who uh, I remembered almost immediately. I don't know if you remember this, but I remember uh, him in, uh, he was a biker, a leader of a biker gang in Remo Williams. No, because like I said, I haven't seen it since I was a kid, so I definitely don't remember that. Yeah, he's, he's a unique looking gentleman. He's a, you know, ball headed beard, big guy, probably at least as tall as uh, Eastman. There are a lot of tall dudes in this because Eastman's 6'9", I know that. And uh, Green wasn't much shorter than uh, Eastman. And uh, uh, Darwin Suave there on the Tola Blanco. He was, uh, I say Blanco because that's the way uh, uh, Raul says his name every time he says it. <laughs> you must wrestle Blanco. Yeah. I think uh, Eastman must have got his voice from uh, Eli Wallach from The Good, The Bad, The Ugly.
ugly? Yeah, it sounds. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it does sound like it for sure. <laughs> he goes, "You must have a blanco. We use rattlesnake, which is, oh, is we'll a great. I'm not going to give away too much more than that. I'll just say that that's a great scene. Let's just say that. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll touch on that a little bit uh, as we get on. And then again, I won't give away too much either because <laughs> it's got a hell of a payoff. I want to give it away, but I'm not going to give it away because the payoff goes one way, and I think, okay, this is how this is going to go. This is going to be pretty cool, and then then something else happens right then and there, and I'm like, whoa, that was bizarre <laughs> oh the yeah I yeah it involves the karate chop yes yes the karate <laughs> yeah that was a mean karate chop yeah of all the films we've covered this is the most brutal karate chop yet oh yeah well, that's saying something but other than uh, well the you know the guy the shades you know uh you think you call him casanelli claudio casanelli he was also uh i believe either he was or the other hitman i believe i remember him in oddly enough raiders of atlantis playing one of the goons in the mansion at the beginning so um i don't know if you hmm. noticed that or not but uh no yeah that's one of those things that i you know my crazy wacky exploitation cinema memory seems to recognize sometimes like oh yeah i've seen that guy where'd i see that guy and i thought about it and i thought oh yeah members only jacket oh whoa that's raiders oh. of atlantis no shit there you go. Yeah, sadly, actually, Castanelli, he'd been in a lot of stuff. Um, and to me, in this film, he looked like Michele Suave, Suave, or Suave, and... Um, <laughs> Rico Suave. Yeah. Uh, Castanelli, <laughs> Castanelli sadly died filming this uh, during one of the helicopter scenes. So this was his last film, and he'd done a ton of stuff. He did uh, Warriors of the Year 2072, uh, Big, uh, Big Alligator River, uh, Mountain of the Cannibal Gods, uh, a ton of stuff. So a few Polizia films, um... So he'd been around for a long time, so kind of tragically, yeah, he died during the filming of this. Now that you brought him up. Yeah. He died, uh, did he, uh, was an accident involved in the helicopter? I believe so. Wow. Yeah, I believe there was an accident on set, and uh, he died as a result. Nasty. Them helicopter accidents always reminds me of the Twilight Zone story, which Big is always moral. so disturbing. All right, so that being said, I think I'll kick it over to you and let you go over some of your notes. Okay, I'll try as usual. To get through it somewhat quickly, I know we're we're starting to run on here a little bit. I loved uh, Paco's futuristic Casio calculator watch. Oh yeah, I forgot all about the watch, man. I meant to write that down. That was awesome. That <laughs> I remember was awesome. those watches. <laughs> yeah, they were quite the rage. Uh, yeah, you couldn't even press the buttons on them though if you had a big finger. No, forget it. You were mashing four buttons at a time. It was just uh, you did not mention one of the most awesome things in the film, and that's the acid rain sequence. Uh, well, I I, I kind of held back because I knew that when well, me me and you off the air had talked about it. Oh yes. So I kind of assumed you were going to bring it up, and and we could talk about it a little bit. <laughs> Well, let's talk about it because when Paco's on the run in this, I think it looked like a Trans Am with um, a dryer. It was vents a uh, it was a Camaro it. actually, a white Camaro. Oh, okay, yeah, and it has the dryer vents taped on the back to look like a DeLorean of sorts. Yes, it, they were taped on there too. I think I saw <laughs> yeah, duct tape. Yeah, exactly. It, but he he's driving across the desert, and there's a part where he's got to go through uh, this area, and there's a sign that says "Danger, Acid Rain Ahead." And uh, needless to say, he's driving through there, and well, it literally was acid rain. You could see it was starting to burn through the the hood of the car, or the uh, roof of the car, and and miraculously, it only seemed to be on the passenger side. Yeah, that was the most interesting part is that it just it came through the roof of the car on the passenger side, and I think almost uh, I think yeah I think it did uh, start a fire on the passenger your seat and Paco just kind of looks at it yeah, makes a little driving. curled lip and then just keeps driving yeah exactly but <laughs> it was awesome to see acid rain as acid rain you know like literally acid rain so I thought that was kind of cool I just love that there's a warning sign for you know acid rain ahead as if great. as if there wouldn't be acid rain everywhere yeah it's like this was the acid rain zone yeah I don't know if there was something I, yeah that's a good point I guess uh, I hadn't thought of if it's there it's gonna be everywhere but you know um <laughs> Yeah, I can't explain that. Okay, so we talked about Champions Oasis Truck Stop a little bit with uh, Janet Egren, who'd been in a lot of stuff, a lot of genre stuff. 
She has been in some trash films. I mean, all these actors have been in some bad stuff, but Janet Agron might have been in the worst stuff. Yeah, she did. Uh, she was actually Red Sonja's sister. I read that. I thought that was kind of cool. I don't. I don't remember that. No, nor do I. Again, it's, I haven't seen that since I was a, a youth. But no, she was in City of the Living Dead, Manjati VV. She's Swedish, actually. So I guess the Blackberg talk uh, <laughs> well, does come go. back after all. We couldn't. Yeah, I thought she <laughs> couldn't escape it. No, I thought she was uh, going to be German or Italian and just using the name Agron as uh, you know, as they're wont to do. Well, just like Martino did with uh, Martin Dolman. Um, but no, she's uh, Swedish. I love the scene where Raul first shows up and sees that he's been unseated as the alpha male uh, by uh, Paco. And he has one of his goons <laughs> send... Uh, he's trying to uh, taunt Ra- uh, Paco. And he basically sends Paco uh, a challenge note on a roll of toilet paper oh, on the dinner yes. plate. <laughs> <laughs> what, why would he write it on a roll of toilet paper? Is it... Uh, you know, I thought maybe there was going to be a really great thing there. I think, was, I think at one point... No, I don't think he calls him a shit face or anything like that. But I thought maybe at one point he was going to throw the roll over. Maybe it was something like that. Maybe he was going to tell him to wipe your face because it looks like shit. Well, I know they did say that he this guy was probably as strong as a wet fart. <laughs> one of the, peanut, the trucker peanut gallery uh, piped up with that one. <laughs> yeah, that's an uh, original line, let me tell you. <laughs> and then one of his guys actually says to him, uh, or no, no, Raul, because you see, you know, inevitably, Raul and, uh, and uh, Paco lock arms. You know, I get the close up of the arms and the bulging biceps. And Rule says to him, "When I when I get done with, or when I get done with you, you'll wipe your ass with your nose." Well, see, that's what I, that's what I confused. I thought maybe the toilet paper was maybe maybe something to do with that comment. The most awesome thing about that scene is how Paco reacts with his writing tablet, which you can go oh, ahead and yeah. go in detail about that. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, yeah. It basically, the the kitchen counter because Paco is working for Linda for room and board, and uh, he gets a blue crayon, writes something on this marble kind of countertop uh, once he's done writing he rips the marble countertop in, uh, into a piece and throws it at uh, <laughs> at Paco or at uh, Raul and the gang it says it says you're on on it yeah exclamation point exclamation point yeah, yeah. no I, I thought uh, he throws marble not that uh, it's funny enough that uh raul writes on toilet paper but no he writes on a countertop and rips it off which is it looks like marble and then throws it across the room and uh, that shuts down the wet fart comments really quick oh yeah there was no more wet fart talk from the trucker peanut gallery after paco <laughs> laid down the uh, gauntlet yeah i guess i shouldn't mention too much but there's a great quote-unquote Indian-style arm wrestling match between the tri-state champion Blanco and uh, our guy Paco. And uh, let's just say that the uh, arm wrestling match, the Indian-style arm wrestling match, involves a rattlesnake on either side. Yeah. And I think that's all we can say. I mean, that's a, that's an awesome scene. Yeah, um, yeah, you'll hear that. That'll come up again here a little later. Uh, yeah, it'll probably come up twice. What else do I got here? Well, I know, you know, actually I won't really get into that. Of course, as is usual for the time, there were some very respectable mullets, especially the truck who was driving the tow truck with uh, with Paco tied to the back. Oh, yeah, that was an awesome mullet. It was very nice, very nice. Uh, a couple more things. Uh, I thought the effects with um, with Paco's hand, considering the budget and the time, didn't look too bad. Yeah, that scene is so similar to uh, Terminator, Terminator. I almost think that you could sue for copyright infringement. Yeah, it is pretty similar, but you can see he's kind of, you know, mucking around with uh, the wires and stuff inside his, uh, his forearm and the hands moving in time with it. I did think the guy that played the FBI guy, the black guy, was uh-huh. by far the most wooden, just inept actor in the film. And when you get films like this, to say you're the worst of the bunch, I mean that's really uh, quite the branding. Yeah, he was pretty. He was pretty bad. Oh fuck, he was terrible. I mean, he he made everyone else look like pros. Oh no, I don't either. I just know he was the FBI guy that was 
with Dr. Peckinpah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay, actually, I'll talk about that woman now, because I know we're starting to run a little long here. Um, basically, Jan- uh, Janet, I keep calling her Janet, because that's her real name. Linda's character runs that Champions Oasis truck stop, and they get a lot of truckers come in with uh, prostitutes for, the, for a half day or for an hour or for the night. And near the end of the film, there's a nice little payoff uh, to that with uh, this guy coming in on a, uh, on a motorcycle uh, with a Pris lookalike from Blade Runner. And anyone who's seen Blade Runner knows where this is going. Yeah. Um, you know, naturally, she, she ends up fighting Paco in a pretty awesome uh, hand-to-hand combat scene until Paco gets fed up and rips her head off and, uh, <laughs> and tosses it down after they've exchanged gunfire and, and what have you. Uh, and she says she's the ultimate cyborg and so on and so forth. But yeah, you know, that was a pretty good little scene. Uh, I could see some cyborg on cyborg action because up until that point, well, with, the, with that exception, there was no none of it other. Uh, that's all I really have in terms of scenes and observations. I did want to say, though, that before I get into my my rankings and, and ratings and so forth, um, I didn't know at first that this was a, a Martino film until I did a little research because obviously it says Martin Dolman. But I remember thinking when I'd first seen it that despite its low budget, I thought it was very competently shot. Uh and, you know, you look at some of the stuff, like, there's some stuff in here that could have been pretty clunky and, and looked pretty bad in the hands of uh, a less experienced guy. Some of the action stuff with uh, the guns and the set pieces, um, the helicopter chase, the stuff on the bridge uh, with the Freightliner, some of the stuff on the canyon with the chopper shootout with Paco. I thought it was, it was pretty competently done. You know, you could yeah. see it was, it was someone that, despite the budget, it's sort of like what Castellari always does. I mean, that's why I love him so much is, you know, his action set pieces really bring up uh, the, the film from from their mediocre budgets to, to look like they're more than they are, or at least, you know, go beyond what the budget would allow normally. Yeah, that's all I got. I know there was a mention of a laser in this film. There was a laser, actually. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, it looked more like an accordion plunger on a toy gun, but... Um, and you guys out there, if you don't know enough we haven't mentioned before but the gentlemen are big fans of lasers yes and the bad movies that usually come with the laser yeah anytime there's laser in the title yeah Sammy and I have talked about this many times anytime there's laser in the title or a laser is one of the focal points of the film generally the film is terrible I mean usually in a good way but it's it's not yeah. usually uh, Peckinpah or Kubrick-esque that's for sure <laughs> to say the least alright so I'll go over my uh Make or break in my MVT. My make or break for this film, uh, and I won't go into too much detail because I think you have, you'll have a feeling you'll bring it up again. But it is the Indian uh, arm wrestling match with Blanco and uh, Paco. It's a it's just a great scene. It, it's set up well. It has a great payoff, which I'm not going to give away because you guys got to see it to see to believe it. Because uh, I did not expect it goes one way, which I expected, and then it takes a turn, and I'm like, well, what the hell? <laughs> what the hell did I just see? So I had to you know rewind and watch again. And I think I watched it like six times because it was just so awesome. Awesome. My MVT for this is going to be, uh, it was almost Simonetti because I like the music a lot. Uh, and then it was almost Stivaletti because the special effects are good for such a low budget. I'm going to go with Martino. I'm a huge Sergio Martino fan. Uh, I think out of uh, almost all of the directors that came out of the kind of uh, B-movie exploitation craze of the 70s and uh, late 60s, Martino is one of the best. He's certainly one of the sleaziest directors of the bunch. Uh, you guys have probably heard him mentioned on uh, Cinema Diabaca quite a bit. He's made a few films that they've covered uh you know your vices are a locked room and only i have the key as being one and uh, i still can't believe nobody's covered torso yet so hopefully we can get around to covering that for somebody else does but we'll see yeah i love the one title for torso which uh is my favorite i actually like it more than torso which is bodies bear traces of carnal violence that's a, an italian title if i've ever heard one yeah so he's uh he directed a few of those and he also directed some spaghetti westerns which i'm not going to go over because i'm afraid somebody else might cover those because there, there's actually a couple of them that are one of them i know for sure is good and there's a couple of them i haven't seen that i would like to see but there's actually a yeah, film I mean, in his filmography called Island of the Fishmen, which I have to 
to look up now because it's shot in the Philippines. Yeah, I, I will actually have uh, at least one of his westerns off the top of my head. Um, and I have a few of his Polizia films. I got to say, I don't like his Polizia work too much. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe it's because I'm not a huge Luke Miranda fan. Mm-hmm. Um, I think his Giallo stuff, yeah, was, was pretty solid from what I've seen and what I've heard about what I haven't seen. So I'd love to. Yeah, he's a good filmmaker, man. I'd, I'd love to cover more of his stuff. And he's still working. Yeah, he's still doing stuff. He just did a film. Uh, I can't pronounce the title of it, but it looks like it might have been a sequel. But he still does TV work quite a bit. Uh, mostly he's done TV work recently. But he did do a film in 99 called Mozart is a Murderer, which uh, nice. sounds interesting. Uh, looks like he shoots a lot of films in Germany nowadays, so I don't know. But yeah, he is still working. Uh, 70-year-old uh, Sergio Martino, also known as Julian Barry, Martin Dolman, Serge Martin, Christian Plummer, and George Ramanito. Or Ramento. Julian so, Barry. So Martino's never, you know, avoided a paycheck. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so, But I'm going to go with him. Uh, he is a talented director. Uh, he's not a... You know, the, these two directors are totally different people that we're covering this week. You know, Sam Peckinball, who's considered a master, and then uh, Martino, who's considered a bit of a hack by a lot of people, film critics in general. But for us film fans that like the B-grade type films, he's uh, he's one of the better ones, trust me. And uh, I know Hans knows that I'm a big Martino fan. I just, I, I've always just liked the feel of his jellos more. They just have that, that feel of sleaziness that I really like in a jello. And uh, hey, a lot of his films from that period are very sleazy and very, I don't know, just, they, the films after you watch them, you just feel kind of dirty for watching them so that's my mvt and i would give this film a i would give it a solid seven now that's a little higher than i think than my even my trinity score and trinity's a film i can watch over and over again so that gives you an idea that uh i could watch this film a bunch it's it's not long it's an hour and a half and it's it's a quick film there's not a lot of downtime there's some great uh lines of sexual innuendo and and uh great scenes if if you're a female and you like guys that are buff and like to take the shirts off you'll enjoy this film quite a bit or if you're a male and you like guys to take the shirts off (laughs) (laughs) and stuff uh, you'll like this film quite a bit, but it is a lot of fun, so I give it a solid seven. Okay, great. Um, I think I'd asked you this, and I don't know what you'd said, and I'm going to put you on the spot. If you had to pick Raiders of Atlantis for this, which one did you like more? Well, both films, I can say this, both films are, you know, all killer, no filler. Yeah. Uh, they don't really waste a lot of time. I'm going to go with Raiders of Atlantis because I like the dynamics in Raiders of Atlantis a little bit more. I like the... Yeah, the uh, ensemble kind of. Yeah, the ensemble cast, the, you know, the, the Lego uh, oil rig that gets blown over by a puddle of water in a sink and uh you know the members only jackets the no member there was almost there was a scene uh, with the guy with the sunglasses where i thought he had a members only jacket on but it wasn't it was kind of a third rate uh, members only jacket now if they'd have had the members only jacket i might have went with hands of steel so yeah they, they were lacking <laughs> they were sans members only jacket yeah it is a hard they're, they're very similar films but uh, i do like raiders of atlantis a little bit more uh fair enough i guess i should answer it's only fair i like it a touch more too for what it's worth but i don't want to slag on this one because like you said this one's a lot of fun i'll kill no filler um okay so my make or break is also the indian quote-unquote indian style arm wrestling match and again i don't want to give too much away and some could say well it's not really spoiling anything but there's a good little payoff that i think uh, is worth kind of seeing uh, in that scene my mvt is a little bit odd and it's going to sound like i'm i'm not too fond of the film or i'm shortchanging the film but allow me to elaborate my mvt is the vhx vhs box art for this film now <laughs> the reason it is is because anyone who's seen it knows it's fucking excellent for starters secondly i was at a yard sale like i said when i bought this for 25 cents and if this had had some really generic cover you know those uh those 80s uh, to early 90s covers that they were shot on like a stage somewhere with like a fog machine and you know kind of people in sort of a freeze frame you know what yes. i mean yes i know exactly if, if what it, you mean if it had been something like that that i probably never would have picked this film up um but because the cover was so awesome uh, i picked it up and like i said I, that's not shortchanging the film because i love this film i will show this film to any 
anyone who likes sort of uh, B, B movies, I think if you're a B movie fan, it's worth seeking out. It's worth dusting off the VHS machine for. Um, it's it's an uh, it's it's great, great, great for what it is. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna give it a six and a half out of ten. And again, that's not. Uh, I think, uh, reflective of how much I love the film. I absolutely love the film. It's uh, one of my favorite films I've seen this year, but if I'm going to rank it or give it sort of a, a critical number, that would be the number I'd give it. But it's, God, it's so much fun, this film. And, and I really hope that some of you will seek it out or track it down and will let us know what you thought of it because it's such a fucking riot of a film. To say the least. Yeah. And uh, and that's all I got. I was just looking through uh, IMDb, guys, and I saw a quote from uh, Martino, and he says, uh, my movies are like a soft drink, sparkling unaffected products for mass consumption. A soft drink doesn't have the prestige of champagne, of course, but I'd rather have a good soda pop than watered down wine anytime. So, that kind of gives you an idea of uh, Sergio Martino as a director too. So with all that being said, we will go to break and we will be right back with uh, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Ah, you kids today with your internet porn, discussion forums, and illegal movie torrents. At CinemaDiabolica.com, we've got something way better than all that. We've got overly opinionated, offensive commentary on films that we more than likely didn't pay for. I guess you could say it's like the entire internet all on one site. Except not. Yo, son, CinemaDiabolica.com is like the whole internet on one site. Except not. Holla. CinemaDiabolica.com Little anthrax, bright and early in the morning. Nice. I don't mind anthrax. I mean, I'm, I can't say I'm overly knowledgeable on them, but anything I've heard, I don't mind. Yeah, a little old school stuff there. I think it's lone justice from uh, spreading the disease. So, a little old oh, school anthrax. Kind of go with the. Uh, I think it came out about the same year as Hands of Steel. So nice. So I thought I'd throw that in there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So our next film is one. Bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. All right, so a brief plot synopsis of uh, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Uh, an American bartender and his prostitute girlfriend go on a road trip through the Mexican underworld to collect $1 million bounty on the head of a dead gigolo. All right, this is directed by one Sam Peckinpah, one of my personal favorite directors of all time. <coughs> Starring one of my personal favorite actors and fellow Louisvillian, Warren Oates. So I picked this film. Uh, I know you'd seen it a couple times, and I know you were happy to see it again. So let's get to talking about it. What would you think? Uh, I have to say I did like it more on this viewing. This was a film that uh, it was probably maybe the third or fourth, maybe the third, well, somewhere third or fourth Peckinpah film I'd seen, or somewhere in there anyway. And uh, before that, I'd seen uh, Wild Bunch, which is by far... Well, I don't want to say it by far, but it's definitely, definitely my favorite Western uh, of all time. One of my favorite movies of all time. Um, I'd seen Straw Dogs, of course, uh, which is a great film. And so when I'd heard about this film, my expectations were through the roof. You had Peckinpah doing this film with uh, what I think is one of the greatest title 
Beatles of all time. Yes. Bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. And just the, the blend of this sort of seedy, sort of scuzzy underworld or underbelly of, of uh, society and this, this head being transported across Mexico because of a bounty and I, and Warren Oates, you know, I just thought, wow, this is going to be maybe the greatest film ever made. And needless to say, I was a little let down when I saw it. And I think I said so, actually, in an early voicemail to Cinema Diabolica a long time ago. Um, but I'm glad that you picked it uh, to revisit. And it's time we covered some Peck and Pie anyway, because both of us are, are, are pretty big fans. Um, I definitely like this film a lot more. And you'd said to me off the air that it's a film that really uh, lends itself well to multiple viewings or repeated viewings to just to kind of get a more of a handle or feel for it. Right. Um, which I definitely did. And that's saying something, because as I said to you, I kind of got interrupted a lot um, with family stuff when I was watching it. And it took me about three, three or four hours to get through it. And usually that really kills a film for me. Mm-hmm. You know, you think, oh man, you get out of the rhythm and you kind of get cold going back into it. But uh, no, I, I definitely liked it a lot more. Getting to some of the things I really liked about the film. Uh, something at the beginning, uh, the opening scene with the daughter. I can't remember uh, El Jefe's daughter's name, but she's uh, basically sitting at the this pond with, her, with these uh, geese or swans kind of you know floating around. She's got her foot in the water and it's, it's just a very calm, serene start to the film. And it's really the only calm or serene part in the entire film for the most part right yeah it kind of it kind of just escalates into bizarre insanity from that point on yeah i mean you know you get some of the scenes with uh isela vega i think her name is and uh, warren oates which i'll get to uh, a little bit later but i thought yeah it starts off with that and then you know you get uh all these men just basically saying your father wants to see you your father wants to see you and it kind of pulls back and you see this this quite this operation her father has going and i think her father uh, who's played by emilio fernandez he was uh, the general mapache in uh in wild bunch bad guy in that one too yes he um, did uh he did a couple films with uh peck and paul including uh, pat garrett and the billy the kid too which i wouldn't mind covering at some point yeah i'm totally game he plays el jefe and i think doesn't jefe mean like the boss el jefe would mean the boss in yes, Spanish. yeah or? i think it means uh boss or the boss yeah yeah something like that but anyway the you can see that he's got quite this operation going it's never really said what the operation is but um you know uh in any event you can imagine what sort of uh operation he has going on so anyway these these two men grab the daughter because the father wants to see her and you can see she's pregnant uh and she's young i mean i don't know what would you say sammy she's probably 17 18 at the oldest uh uh, yeah, I mean, uh, she might even be younger than that, I think. I don't know. Uh, yeah, no, she did look pretty young, actually. Maybe so 15, maybe... 16. Maybe that's you know, being a yeah. little too anal about it. But, I mean, that's what she... It felt to me like she was a little younger than uh, El Jefe was very happy about. Well, I will say this in an F-13-inspired moment of humor. If she had been a little more anal about it, she wouldn't have had the bun in the oven. Oh, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs> that one's for you, F. Um... <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, she she did look pretty young. Uh, so the boss or the, her father uh, wants to see her, and I found it interesting because the shot where the two men are escorting her to see her father—it's shot from the feet, um, and you can hear the clanging and stuff. And it almost—if you didn't—if you just saw that scene and weren't familiar with the film, the impression I got was that it would almost look like a prisoner being escorted by two men to uh, to you know to to her cell or to their cell or to the judge of sorts. I don't know if you you feel that way or. I don't have any feelings about that scene, but I, I do like that they shot it from the feet, and yeah. it kind of gives you that misperception. Uh, something Peck and Paul liked to do quite a bit is set up scenes with misperception. He was always a big fan of that, and uh, I do I do recall that scene. Don't get me wrong, I just I don't think that uh, maybe I didn't read that much into it this time around. I don't know why, but maybe I didn't. Hmm. I might have to go back and watch it again. Not that I have a problem with it, because I feel like I said I've watched this film about nine times now, and every time I've watched it, I've liked it more since the last time. So I think by the time I get done, hopefully I'll watch as many times as I watch Cobra and. 
and uh, <laughs> which I'm still hearing shit about that. And uh, by that time, it'll be one of my favorites, of my, if not maybe my favorite film of all time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but no, I just got that vibe, and I think it's it had to be intentional. I mean, especially with a, a filmmaker of Peck and Paws caliber, that the the wife and the daughter um, and the family who aren't involved in his operation are prisoners in a sense. To, of his. Yeah. Uh, he's going to dictate what they can do uh, from a moral standpoint. You kind of get the vibe that he controls them very much. So I think that's probably why it was done. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I thought it was interesting for sure. Um, and you kind of see early on how just how, how brutal uh, El Jefe is when the goons bring his daughter in. Uh, she's, you know, he wants to know who, who impregnated her and she doesn't say, she doesn't say until they bend her arms back. And I think they break one of her arms uh, and, she, and they rip her shirt off. I mean, she's topless in front of all these people. And she finally, of course, uh, says, well, it was Alfredo Garcia. So, I mean, yeah, you get to see this guy's a, a cold motherfucker. I mean, when he wants something, he's going to get it, whether it's his teenage daughter that uh, has the information or whomever. He's going to get what he wants. Which, of course, leads him to say, you know, I'll pay a million dollars, bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. Which uh, kind of gets the film rolling. And I think, if I can, if I remember correctly, that's kind of, you, you hear it, but you just see the sort of his compound. You kind of hear it from outside the compound when he says it. Um, and it's, it's you can see that, you know, a lot of people are on this case. Because a million dollars, even by today's standards, is a good chunk of change. A million dollars in nineteen what seventy four? Yeah, that is a lot of money. <laughs> I mean, oh, yeah. it's, it's it might not go as far nowadays, uh, but I'd still wouldn't mind having some. I don't know if I'm going to take somebody's head to get it, but you know, whatever. Yeah, but uh, I mean, you get the the sense of scope of of how many people are looking for this guy's head because you see cars going out of the compound, you see men on horseback, you see planes flying. So I mean, you just get the the, the sense that all these bounty hunters and scavengers and mercenaries and everyone's just going to try and can, can get this guy. So I thought it was it was a good uh, good way to can just with that you know ten seconds of of, of film kind of let you know that this uh, is going to be a hotly contested uh, head to say the least. Yeah. One thing I do like that Peck and you I'm. Sure sure you'd agree with me peck and paw's use of mexican music um was very very nice he he seems to be very enamored with mexican culture and i think you would probably know this because you're uh, a little bit more of a, a historian uh, or an expert on peck and paw than i am i believe both of his wives were mexican were they not or or one of them was or I'm not positive about his wife so much because I only I know more about the fact that he just slept with anything. So, <laughs> uh, you know, he was a real hellraiser in real life. I mean, this guy was the real deal. And I'll go more into detail about uh, this film and Peck and Paul here, and when I get to my side of it. But uh, he did have a fondness for the the border culture uh, between Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, and Mexico, and he really just had a fondness for that lifestyle, the brothels, all that stuff. He really, he really, really appreciated that stuff. If one can appreciate it, he he definitely did. He was a connoisseur let's put it that way <laughs> of yeah of all things seedy on well not even just seedy just the culture itself he was or looked at it very fairly uh and then with some affection uh, in his films um i've often heard that warren oates in this film uh, was channeling sam peckinpah i think he even went so far as uh, the white suit he wears and the sunglasses were peckinpahs yeah the actual sunglasses he wears are peckinpahs yeah the the best way to put it is is that he was playing sam peckinpah he's even said well i mean there's not a lot of interviews with warren oates but in the stuff i've read about warren oates he did say he the whole the whole point of doing that film for him was to portray sam peckinpah yeah because like you said peckinpah was a real boozer a real womanizer yeah, yeah like hell he was uh, just a wild bastard, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, and he was probably drunk on set a lot. I mean, but Oates loved working with Peck and Paws, so, I mean, you know, he'd work with him on the Wild Bunch and, and whatnot, so, I mean, he, he loved working with him. One thing I do want to say that both times I've watched the film, I've never gotten this impression is, you know, the two hitmen, I think, played by, uh, is it Gig Young? Is that his name? Yeah, good old Gig Young. <laughs> Gig Young and uh, Robert Weber. They're supposed to be gay lovers in this film, and I've never once, both times that I'd seen this, gotten that vibe from it. 
it. Yeah, I told you. I've seen this film, uh, I guess, eight or nine times, and that's a legitimate number this time, Bill. <laughs> uh, the fact that they're supposed to be gay lovers, I think the only way you would be able to tell that, if it is, and I can't tell it either, the only way you could be able to tell that is if you knew that going in. Because if it is there, it's so subtle that I don't even see it. So I don't, I don't. I agree with you. It, it's not it's not something you pick up. I, I don't pick it up either. Well, no, and I mean, I'm not saying it needs to be sort of this this sort of prancing, uh, very effeminate thing. Because you and I had talked about uh, let the right one in last week. How I kind of got that vibe a little bit from the father. But I'm just saying I don't know if things um, were different in the early '70s where uh, maybe I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I just I couldn't see that. And I always hear how they play gay hitmen or whatever, and it just seemed odd to me that I never got one iota of that. And it's not a big thing in the film, but it's just one of those things that's always brought up and makes it sound really you know, kind of quirky but um I just, gosh i never got that no matter how hard i tried to see it yeah i didn't i didn't see it and i've seen it like i say eight or nine times now and uh i have not ever i've never picked it up okay good so i'm not the i'm not a <laughs> fool after all i thought the just there were a minor thing i thought the picture that everyone totes around including the one in the locket of el jefe's daughter the picture of al garcia is kind of it's a funny picture yeah yeah <laughs> you know he's, he's got that big goofy grin and uh he's supposed to be this this handsome you know Gigolo, and he just looks like this, this big, kind of big, goofy, happy Mexican guy. Which uh, I thought, I don't know. It just I always got, kind of smile whenever I saw the picture because it, you know you picture this sort of Antonio Banderas type, and he doesn't look like that at all. Uh, one thing I did really like about the film, uh, specifically with Benny and Alita. Uh, his girlfriend in the film was, you know, they were older characters. They were very desperate. They were kind of at the end of their rope. They were, this was the last stop, you know, on the, the train line. They'd kind of fallen on hard times. And you really get their, their sense of desperation for, for wanting something more and to get out of this uh, this life they live, uh, even at the, the cost of, of what they have to do to get there, or what he has to do to get there, I guess. There's a great line in the film where basically you see the desperation in Benny, uh, and he says it, and I'll go ahead and quote it here because I, I I love this line. Uh, he says, listen, church cuts off the feet, fingers, or any goddamn thing from the saints, don't they? Well, what the hell? Alf- Alfredo's our saint. He's the saint of our money, and I'm going to borrow a piece of him. And that's pretty much the way he feels. You know, he's had it. He's going to, you know, he's going to get what's rightly his. Yeah, yeah. And there's a few lines that, that I wrote down that uh, Benny says or, or spoken about Benny. And uh, he's talking, I think he was talking about getting out and doing this. And he says, you know, nobody loses all the time. Yeah. You know, and he's just sort of, he's, he's saying that, to, I think, to the... Uh, some of the business associates of El Jefe that have taken up shop. But I think he's also almost saying it to himself that, you know, fuck, I'm sure I've had a string of bad luck, but it can't continue forever. You know, maybe this is the thing that's going to get me out of this uh, this slide I've been in. Yeah, that's really mostly the lines that uh, Benny does say, that Warren Oates does say. It seems to me, and the way I feel about it too, is that really he's kind of telling himself, you know, he has this sense of entitlement at this point. He sense, he feels like, you know, I've, I've been through so much shit. I've lived through so much shit. Uh, I think he even says at one point, I can smell shit 100 miles away sometimes closer <laughs> oh yeah because someone says to him it's a, another great line i think one of those uh, business associates they say something to him like uh you re- you have a nose you really have a nose for shit when he brings the head back yeah he just he's lived a life of uh debauchery and you know he's put up with a lot of shit and he's had a lot of bad breaks and you know he's he's obviously an alcoholic he you know he has a lot of problems he, he lives in this brothel <coughs> and uh it's really kind of disturbing when you think about that, that Benny, that uh, Warren Oates was playing Benny as Sam Peckinpah, his interpretation of Sam Peckinpah. It kind of tells you what kind of person Sam Peckinpah was at this point in his life. Uh, and Warren Oates knew Peckinpah as good as anybody. Uh, he was with him all the time, making movies, and even when they weren't making movies together, he was hanging out with him. I mean, these guys were hellraisers. And uh, you really get that sense that every line of dialogue in the film that Warren is spouting is, is 
basically him telling himself, you know, that he deserves this. Uh, almost every line that's quotable from Benny really is, you know, great. Uh, I love how he calls the head Al, you know, calls him, you know, Al all the time whenever he, you know, he ever needs to grab it or whenever he puts it in the car. And, you know, and the car is great, too. You know, the convertible. Uh, he, you know, throws it in there. Come on, Al, we're going home. Those kind of things. And, you know, it's just it's really great stuff, man. It uh, it definitely is. And, you know, on their trip, you get to see a lot of, uh, of real Mexico, like I touched on earlier. I, I, that's the thing I always I admire about um Peckinpah, he's not afraid to shoot in the sort of real Mexico. You know what I mean? You get yeah. to see a lot of uh, the poor, poor parts of it, uh, some of the villages and stuff, uh, some of the vibrant colors and the crumbling architecture and whatnot. Well, I had read that they wanted to shoot it down there because... Uh this is during Peckinpah's real hell-raising phase. Uh, this is, uh, I believe, after Straw Dogs. And uh, all of Peckinpah's films had problems uh, getting to the screen the way Peckinpah wanted them to. He was just a difficult person. Uh, looking back on it, I'm sure people regret not letting him put his cuts out. But at the time, you know, Hollywood couldn't stand him. So I think he went down there to shoot this movie for like uh, $1.5 million. And uh, real inexpensively, but I think he really went down there to drown his sorrow and just decided to shoot a movie while he was down there. Interestingly enough, one thing I did read, because yeah, you, yeah, I think you just alluded to the fact that he got a little more free reign uh, to do it down there on that small budget. Um, I haven't ever listened to the whole commentary track by the Peckinpah historians, and I, I want to go and listen to it soon because I'd, I'd only put it on for maybe the last 10 or 15 minutes of the film to see what I could glean from it. And they had said, and I did, wouldn't have known this otherwise, um, although I guess now that I know it, it's more obvious, um, they had no problem with him shooting in Mexico and everything else, but they, the El Jefe's character could not be Mexican, and that compound could not be in Mexico uh, wow. because I guess they had a, a bit of a moral problem with uh, uh, portraying Mexicans in that light. You know, they had no problem with the violence and bloodshed otherwise, but uh, the El Jefe character couldn't be Mexican. So that's why you actually see the plane fly. I had just thought they were flying between different places in Mexico, but uh, as it was, uh, it was because of the fact that they, the Mexicans did not want El Jefe to be Mexican, as it were. Huh. I did not know that. Was, yeah, that's kind, of, that's kind of interesting. You know what I mean? That's the that's the beauty of listening to... I know you're a huge fan of audio commentary tracks, and, and I am as well. I don't get to listen to as many as I like because, you know, uh, I end up just watching more movies um but i think when you with an interesting film or an interesting failure or just even a great film um you really can glean so much from a, a good commentary and uh-huh. uh you know this was one of those ones where i am definitely going to go back and listen to the whole thing because i'm sure there was a lot more stuff like that in there that that would have been real interesting to listen to yeah you'll have to check that out uh, when you get a chance Yep. I have mentioned this in the role again going back to the first uh, episode of the show Rolling Thunder obviously borrowed heavily from this sort of the the, the, the desperation the, the red convertible uh, the, <laughs> the sort of Tex-Mex well this is more mechs than it is Tex-Mex yeah. um, kind of setting and so forth so you know and even even to the the, the whole thing of uh, uh, Elita's character she sort of unwittingly is along for the ride initially because she doesn't know the extent of what uh, Benny wants to do. Yeah, that's true. You know, her intentions are very pure. She wants to be with him because she cares for him. Um, and just like the blonde that you thought had a large or a thick tongue in, uh, <laughs> in Rolling Thunder, she was along with Devane's character because, she, again, she, she genuinely cared for him. Right. So I think, you know, again, just to bring that full circle, having covered this film now, um, you really see that. Uh, and, and with Benny and Alita, I thought the the scenes with them singing in the car together and picnicking and stuff, I thought they were really tender scenes and they were handled really well. No, I agree. These are those are the only scenes 
in the movie where you really see Benny could be a happy person. He's just a miserable fucker. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's had a lot of bad luck. You know, as you said, you alluded to the line, nobody loses all the time. Evidently, he's lost everything at some point in time in his life. But well, yeah, what you get there is you get these moments of clarity, these moments of uh, uh, happiness that are really kind of heartfelt and really kind of sweet. And uh, I felt the same way. I felt like, you know, wow, this, you know, a couple of different breaks and this could have been a totally different person. But, uh, you know, you never know what's going to happen in a lifetime. And obviously life had beaten Benny more often than he had beaten life. So Yeah, yeah, you really got that. Just bad break after bad break, bad business decision or bad personal decision. Because they alluded to the fact that he was in the Army and, you know, was kind of on the up and up as a young man. And here he is playing uh, Guantanamera for for American tourists in a Mexican brothel. Mm-hmm. That's where he's ended up. But, uh, you know, I, I thought, yeah, their scenes were really well handled. There's a scene... I, I wanted to ask you about this, and I think it, it doesn't hurt to ask on the air. Chris Christopherson has a cameo, I guess, uh, in the film when uh, Benny asks Alita to marry him and they're they're going to sleep under the stars that night. Uh, Chris Christopherson's character plays a biker and he comes to rape Alita. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I'm giving anything away by saying that. It's nothing crucial or critical. Um, but the one thing I, I found with the film was, as in Straw Dogs, was... I was a little bit confused almost with the the willingness uh, at the end of, of her or the giving in of her to Christopherson's character. It's, it was a little bit confusing for me that, again, Peckinpah did that. Yeah, that's always been the controversy of Straw Dogs is, you know, is it misogynist? And uh, Peckinpah, it's it's no real secret. He, he loved women, but I don't think he respected them very highly. I mean, he was a man's man kind of guy. Not to say that man's men kind of guys are, you know, all misogynist, but he seems to see women as... And this is just my perception, I don't know. I've read a lot about him and stuff, and I know that he did have some issues with women. But he seems to relate better to men, and women are just there for, you know, his satisfaction, maybe? Yeah. That's a, kind of a harsh statement, but, you know, it's if you think about it, though, it's kind of an Old West, uh, hell-raising, you know, biker kind of statement. Not to say, don't want to put this out there in case we got any bikers that listen to the show. <laughs> Not to say that bikers yeah. are like that so much, but it's just kind of this old man, old old west old men kind of mentality of man is man woman is woman you know what i'm saying yeah no i guess yeah that that certainly makes sense and it just uh i think it's it's a very yeah i mean i love peck and pop but yeah like you said he's a quote-unquote man's man and i think that doing it once i can see but twice it's it's you know you got to start to wonder about his <laughs> his overall perspective on women i guess yeah i know he'd uh, had i know when he was making straw dogs he had had some bad relationships and i think that kind of comes through in straw dogs <laughs> Yeah. And uh, uh, and then in this film, it, it kind of creeps in there again, but maybe not as harshly as Straw Dogs, but still in a weird, creepy kind of way that uh, does make you slightly uncomfortable. So I, I don't know. I, I guess he just, you know, he saw women as one thing, you know. I mean, that's the great thing about filmmakers, you know. When their personality comes through in their films, even if it's very flawed, that's what makes a great filmmaker is when that stuff comes through, uh, you know. I'd rather have Sam Peckinpah being a misogynist, which I'm not a fan of, but I'd rather him be that on film and in his films than I would, you know, Brett Ratner just being a fan of Chris Tucker. So there you go. That's a very good point. And yeah, just the the lack of, uh, or I guess the individual, the the individual's perspective. And, and, you know, when you get films being made in the 70s, that was a great thing about the 70s, as we've often said, is it was hearing the director, seeing the director's voice. You know, you don't get this uh, generic sort of uh, garbage that, that people like Ratner put out. I don't want to go into too much detail, but there's a decision Benny makes um, regarding Elita um, when he hooks up with Al. Uh, I, I, I guess it kind of made sense in his sort of fevered state, but I... 
I don't know. I still struggled with the decision he made. Yeah, I, I don't know, want to be overly cryptic, but I wanted to ask you about that. It's funny you mentioned that. You know, the one thing I've realized looking at Peck and Paul's work, and I've looked at uh, just about every film. I haven't seen every one. I've never seen Cross of Iron, and I think I've there's Neither a couple I. ones I haven't. There's a couple others I haven't seen, but I have seen the you know the staples. And uh, I think the one thing that comes through his work the most is almost every film. At some point, the characters come to a point where they have to make a decision. You know, they have to make that choice. That's either going to, one, uh, ruin their lives or end their lives or make their lives better. He seems to, he seems to, that theme seems to come back no matter what. And it's, of course, it's most memorable in The Wild Bunch because, you know, Pike has to make a decision and he makes the decision. And the funny thing is his boys make the decision with him, you know? Yeah, we, yeah, we won't see any more than that, I guess. But yeah. it, yeah, it's a very, very, yeah. You mean, in, in Straw Dogs, the same thing happens. Dustin Hoffman makes a decision, you know? You think about his films, the ones you've seen. Yeah. Uh, even, you know, Convoy, for instance, uh, as B-movie as that is, at one point, uh, Christopherson and Borgnine both have to make a decision you yeah know? and that's yeah. A, that's a theme that keeps coming back in all of his films it goes all the way back to uh, ride the high country his first western i mean it goes all the way back to that if you watch his films there's always comes a point where a man has to make a decision and i think that's probably personal for peck and paul because there was a lot of times in his life where he had to make decisions he he struggled uh, to give you a little bit of history about peck and paul he struggled because he was uh, he was a, a lover of theater and acting and uh you know movie making but his family kind of looked upon all that stuff as kind of uh you know fruity behavior you know uh he should be out hunting he should be out uh you know you know just being a man mm-hmm. so he i think he struggled with that his whole life uh, he struggled with the fact that i don't think his mom and dad i know he had family problems i don't think they ever understood the decision to go with acting i know he had a lot of issues with his mother which probably comes through in the misogyny of his uh the females he, in his films yeah uh, definitely yeah he he definitely uh he definitely his personality affects his films and that's the greatest thing about peck and paul his films maybe besides the wild bunch straw dogs and and maybe this film Almost all of them are terribly flawed, but that's because, you know, Peckinpah was a flawed man. I mean, he was very flawed, and I, like I said before, I'd rather, you know, a flawed man make movies who's got talent than a man who doesn't make a mistake, you know? Yep. I mean, I'd rather have these flawed movies to talk about than, than, uh, than uh, you know, crystal clean, uh, super cut, well-made films. I mean, because life is sloppy, and I think Peck and Paul realized that, and this film, more than any other, shows you how sloppy life can get really quickly, and uh, maybe that's why he considers it his most personal film, because his life got sloppy. You know, all of us who love movies would love the idea of making movies for a living. Uh, that would be like a dream job. I don't know about you, but I mean, that definitely would be a dream job for me. I'd love to be a filmmaker. That'd be great. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that your demons aren't going to, you know, follow you into that field either. So, and obviously they followed him all the way up until yeah. his death. So that's, uh, <clears throat> that's in, yeah. I mean, you nailed it. That's wow. a pretty that's deep so, conversation there, man. I don't know. That's <laughs> good stuff, man. That's good stuff. No, that's great stuff. Uh, like I said, you're a little more, you're a lot more of a historian as much as I'm a big fan of his work. Um, and I, I'm familiar with the troubles he had and sort of the, um, it's more surface. I guess more general generalities than it is digging deep like uh, you know you've read a little bit more on, on him uh, than I have so no it's it's uh, it's good to know that um, I'll just get a couple more things because I know you probably got a lot to say about this film it's very obvious that Frank Miller and or Robert Rodriguez were, were influenced by uh, the scenes with Benny talking to Al's head <laughs> yeah. in Sin City yeah. You know, anyone who's seen Sin City and hasn't seen this, the scenes with Clive Owen and uh, Felicia Del Toro's head uh, were clearly borrowed from this film 
Uh, and if you think about it for its time, the, the fact that he's talking to this this rotting head, and I loved the flies constantly buzzing around this rotting head in the in the sack. I thought that was it looked great. Yeah, but, it gives uh, it a real gives it gives you a real sense of uh, this head rotting and starting to smell really bad. You know, in the the heat of Mexico. Yeah, yeah, no, it really does. I thought that was great. The shootout. There's a shootout uh, at a at a hotel. It reminded me kind of of True Romance, the Mexican standoff at the end, which I'm sure again is no coincidence. Mm-hmm. Um, Actually, it's funny you mentioned that because. That scene you're talking about in Sin City, that's actually the one scene directed by Quentin Tarantino. Well, there you go. Yeah. So, yeah, so that, he, that's funny you mentioned that. I just put that together. So, And we know yeah, Tarantino right. likes Peck and Paul a little bit, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, you could say that. And yeah, because yeah, he didn't need to do it for a dollar, I think. And then, uh, yeah, that's what it was. Yep. I don't want to say too much about the scene. And again, I hate being cryptic sometimes, guys, but I just, I want to touch on it. And once I touch on it and you've seen the film, you'll know what I mean. There's a scene when he um, he takes the uh, the head to the, the hotel and uh, he's got it in this wicker basket. And his little speech about, uh, he says, I want to keep the basket. And what he says following that about, uh, you know, what the basket means to him and why it's important and stuff. Uh, that I found that uh, kind of touching and... You you know, a little bit of a poignant moment uh, in the film again. Touching and disturbing at the same time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, certainly. And then right after the shootout, you get sort of the uh, the Mexican kind of elevator kind of Muzak playing right after everyone's been killed in the hotel, which I thought was kind of a bit of black humor on his part that worked really well. Kind of yeah. a subtle thing, but, uh, yeah, there's a lot of quotes and stuff I'd, I would have wanted to go over. But uh, I will say this. In listening to the audio commentary, I also found out at the end, you know when the nuns come in the uh, in that room in the compound? Yeah. One of those nuns was his wife. <laughs> it was Peckinpah's wife. I thought I, again. I thought that was kind of cool that uh, she showed up in the habit uh, at the end of that film. Um, you know what? I, I'm. That's all I'm going to say. I'm sure you got a lot of notes that are, would, would have covered. I would have said and, and a lot of other stuff in depth. So I'm going to kick it over to you. Yeah, well, oddly enough, most of the stuff you covered, I've pretty much had on my notes. I've been scratching and scribbling as you've been going through your stuff. Yeah, uh, I don't you guys know if you can hear it. You can probably hear it on the track. I'm sitting over going. Yeah, me too. I did that. I do that a lot too. With when you say stuff, because yeah, we are kind of like-minded in that sense. So if you guys ever hear scribbling, it's one of us crossing another thing off the list. There you go. Basically, what I'll go over since we went over the film so much, and I've already went over Peck and Paul and stuff. I'll just kind of go over you know reactions to this film and maybe some more lines of dialogue. I actually do love that one line of dialogue when he just keeps shooting the guy that he's already dead. You know, and he says, "Why? Because it feels so damn good." Yep. You know, you see the struggles with Benny here. You know that he's. He's a violent man who has so many issues, and uh, now he's getting this catharsis, you know, from killing these people. You know, it's really, really great. It's almost like a uh, you know, like a sexual pleasure or something. And, and I know I'm digging back into the sexual stuff I always dig into, but you know, really, I mean, that, that's you know some of the things that motivate a guy like this. You know, he lives in a brothel for Christ's sake. I mean, you know, it's not like he's not having sex. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. He, he, there's just a lot of great. There's a lot of great lines in it, and I really can't go over all of them uh, because there's just too many to even uh, say. I will say that this film has probably more... It's one of those films, and I always love films like this, the ones that divide people, you know, the ones that, mm-hmm. that people... You meet people who either love it or you meet people who hate it. Uh, really, there's no in-between. Uh, sometimes you meet people who, like you, saw it the first time and were just kind of underwhelmed. You probably liked it, but you didn't know why you liked it or, you know, how much you liked it. And it's something you got to revisit, and then, you know, you'll appreciate it more the next time around. Exactly. But it is a divisive film. There's no doubt about that in my mind. Uh, critics, when it came out, uh, most of them just bashed it. But uh, my favorite print critic, uh, Roger Ebert, uh, he actually considers it one of the great movies of all time. I mean, one of the greatest movies ever made. I don't know if it's one of the greatest movies ever made, but I will say because 
this is probably the most personal Peckinpah film and probably the film where his personality comes through the most as as disturbed and, and kind of uh, pessimistic as this worldview was. It's important for being that kind of a documentation of uh, Peckinpah because this is a man who, who changed cinema uh, yeah, with The Wild did. Bunch, you know? Say what you want to say about everything he made after The Wild Bunch. Uh, pretty much after The Wild Bunch, he was trying to recapture The Wild Bunch. Uh, well, the studio was trying to get him to recapture The Wild Bunch, let's put it that way. Yeah. He never wanted mm-hmm. to do The Wild Bunch again. He was fine. He did it. You know, he wanted to move on. But they wanted him to, you know, keep making the Wild Bunch, and uh, you know he changed cinema. Now, how many? I don't know how many directors we talk about who, you know, I don't think Ivan Dixon changed cinema, and I don't think, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't think uh, some of the other directors we've talked about, Mark Lester, Roller Boogie, or... I don't think he changed cinema either. So, yeah. But you know, this is one of those guys, you know, that after Wild Bunch came out, movies changed, and uh, there's no greater credit to a filmmaker than that. I mean, he changed uh, cinema, and uh, the only person I can think of that did that uh, again afterwards was probably Coppola. And then, of course, you know, Spielberg and Lucas, they changed cinema. Uh, for better for, or worse. Yeah, for better or worse, depending on your point of view. And uh, <laughs> then, you know, you get a couple other filmmakers who came along in that branch who changed cinema, too. Scorsese. And I'll even argue that Tarantino changed cinema in, what, 92, 93, or 94, whatever Pulp Fiction came out. These guys changed cinema. And that's the most important thing, because cinema can become stagnant. Right now, it's pretty stagnant, if you ask me. It certainly is. Uh, we need we need another catalyst. We need another person that's going to change it again. And uh, I keep waiting for that moment uh, when it happens. And it, it'll happen again. It, that's the one thing I'm, I'm pretty sure of. It, it always is going to happen. I don't know when, but it will happen again. So, you know, that's the thing you got to remember about this film. I mean, look at it more as a document of who Peckinpah really was. I mean, he out of all the films he ever made, this is the one he loved the most. It's the one he loved the most and the one that had no interference from the studio. Yeah, the one they left him alone on. And I just wish they would have just gave him a million and a half dollars every time and just said, go do whatever the hell you want. Because I think you could have got oh, a lot wow. better movies. Yeah. Unfortunately, definitely. though, Peck and Paul like, eventually became a bit more of a megalomaniac and he wanted more money. He wanted his movies to be bigger. Uh, the only way you can have a bigger movie is to get more money. So you kind of got to bite the hand that feeds you or you got to sell your soul to the devil, however you want to look at it. And that's why, you know, a lot of his stuff after the wild bunch is spotty i mean there's i love the getaway but there's great moments in the getaway but it's not a great great film uh i love uh junior bonner with steve mcqueen uh, yeah it's not really a super great film but it's got a lot of great moments again uh i love convoy which i know convoy's on our list of films to cover uh, yes again not a not a masterpiece by any stretch of the imagination but very still a very interesting film uh that will i'm sure we'll kind of harken back to our coverage of uh, bring me the head of alfred garcia when we get there yeah I, I think it's it's certainly the most minor or the worst of his films <clears throat> At least the ones I've seen, but it still is a pack and pop film. Yeah. So that's really what it comes down to. I mean, my, my feeling on the film is it's it questions, you know, man man and his, you know, duality, you know, does he does he, you know, break himself and, and go toward the violence that, you know, is inherent in most of mankind. You know, most of us I mean we're a violent species, right? And this is maybe me getting a little too deep in everything again, but this is true. I mean, we're a violent species, mankind, and so uh, but we control our violence, you know. We you know, we we hold it back and uh, you know, we're civilized and things like that. But some of us can't. Some of of us get to that point to where you know we're going to break and that's the thing about benny when you meet benny in this film you can see that he's on the verge of breaking already i don't know if you got that feeling but that's what i got oh certainly i mean he's always wearing sunglasses he's clearly drunk all the time he's got a <laughs> bottle with every scene he's in throughout the film he's got a bottle in his hand this is yeah this is a guy that's just you know he's kind of fuck it whatever happens happens whether he dies whether he lives i mean he just he really doesn't care either way he's on the on the brink is right yeah he's broken and you know he just knows it, it you know, he knows that it's time to, to make a decision, like I said earlier. And the decision he makes is not the decision I probably would have made, but, uh, you know, 
I haven't had Benny's life, so there you go. <laughs> but really, that's pretty much all I got to say because you pretty much covered everything else. I will say that this film has that great peck and paw feel of uh, you know dust. It's a western with a Cadillac. It's great, man. The sunglasses are great. I just I keep thinking about those damn sunglasses. Yeah, because every time I think of Warren Oates, uh, and I love Warren Oates. Uh, as an actor, period. But this is always the first role that comes to mind whenever I think of Warren is uh, his his performance in Bringing the Head of Alfredo Garcia because it's it's a freak show performance and at the same time it's very subtle. And you know he got knocked for not being a great actor, but uh, I think if you go back and look at Warren Oates' filmography and the films he made, uh, I think you'd be hard pressed to argue that he wasn't one of the best actors of the '70s. Period. So I think you know who I for some reason you may agree or disagree, but he always kind of reminds me of uh, I, I like if this movie was made today somehow some way I could almost see like a William H. Macy um, Mm -hmm. playing Oates' role I think they're sort of similar in that they don't do a lot of lead roles they're great character actors yep Um, you know yeah I agree I think he's a great actor I don't think you know he's one of the best ever but he's a great character actor and it's one of his few kind of showy without being showy uh, pieces he's gotten to do where he the film really revolves around uh, around him. It's a great performance all around. I guess I'll uh, I'll kick it over to you and let you go over your uh, MVT and make or breaks. The make or break would have been the final scene in the film. I'm not going to talk about it though and I, you didn't either because uh, of everything that happens. Uh, yeah, I don't want my... I don't want to talk about it cuz people need to definitely check this film out. <laughs> I, ironically, as I said, that I literally bit my tongue. That doesn't feel very good. Uh, so what I did choose was the shootout at the hotel. Um, I don't think I'm giving too much away uh, by saying this. There's a scene when he takes the head back that I referenced earlier. He really has to make, like you had said, make a decision at that point if he's going to go all the way or not. Um, because really there's, if not, everything's going to be all for naught. Um, and he makes a decision. He has a little speech there about the basket. and I don't want to say much more than that, but that was my make or break scene. Um thought it was excellent very well played and just let you know how invested he was and it's sort of conscious decision and you could see him kind of um uh explaining everything uh, you know uh, as as to why he was doing it right my mvt of the film and i very easily could have went with oats or peck and paw and probably in all fairness i should have because i mean you know uh, it was a great 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 performance uh by a master director but i will pick again something sort of odd this week for my um mvt i'm gonna pick the head the actual head of alfredo garcia <laughs> you're gonna pick al um, i'm gonna pick al i'm gonna pick al um i think it makes for one of the best titles in film history i think it's such a unique prop slash catalyst uh slash title uh, it almost becomes a game of hot potato who's got the head who's got the head you know and it, it sets itself up very well and especially if you look at it in the context of this is a 34 year old film mm-hmm. um, and so many things have been influenced by it um, whether people like the film or not it's it's been it's been so influential um, so that's what I'm going to pick and like I said that again that's not to say I didn't love a lot of the actors and the direction of the film I just thought it was very interesting um, my score for the film is a 7.75 out of 10 um, when I had first seen it I gave it a 6.75 my rating has just gone up as I've seen it. Um, yeah. I think it's one that by the time I'm all said and done, I may end up giving it, you know, once I've seen it a few more times, an 8.25 or an 8.5. I think it's something that, you know, like you'd said and I'd said, it, it, you kind of got to see it a few times to appreciate it, but uh, I think it's an excellent film and, and worthy of any uh, genre film fans uh, viewing. Yeah, and you can get this really cheap on DVD too. It's one of those MGM DVDs, so it's uh, typically like 15 bucks or 10 bucks. So, and it's got a commentary on it, and it's great transfer, so it's a really good deal. Yeah, it is a great transfer. I will say, for me, the make-or-break scene in this film is 
is the scene at the uh, at the church at the graveyard, uh, you know, getting Alfredo's head. Uh, yeah. I, I, I like that people have to make this decision, and that this is just one of those decisions that a normal person would not make. No, that that's a challenge for me. If you can swallow that part of the film, you can you'll love the rest of the film. Uh, it's a bizarre thing, but it just kind of shows you the depths that uh, people will go to sometimes for money. He'll take it to that degree to be happy because he thinks money's going to solve all of his problems, right? But it's yeah. obvious that Benny has more problems than money. So even if he ended up with a million dollars, he'd just blow it on hookers and booze, and he'd be broke again in no time, I guarantee it. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. I mean, that's just my opinion. But So for my MVT, I'm going to go with Mr. Oates. A little bit of Kentucky pride, but also the fact that out of all of Warren Oates' films that he was in, this is probably the purest uh, uh, great performance by Warren Oates. A lot of his performances are kind of, you know, the, the redneck in the film or the buddy or, or the great performance in Stripes as the uh, drill sergeant, Sergeant Hulka, uh, <laughs> which is just a great, bizarre performance. Yeah. Well, Oates is... Uh, this is a unique actor and he, my favorite kind of actors are those ones who don't look like Hollywood actors uh, character actors like you said I mean those are my favorite kind of actors and this is one of the well I'd say probably in the history of motion pictures probably one of the top five great character actors is Warren Oates so I was glad to see when I heard about this film I was glad I was even thinking then I was glad that Peckinpah was able to get him a movie made uh, starring him now later on Monty Hellman actually made a film with him starring him too which is actually pretty good too I'll let you guys do research to figure out what the name of that movie is I don't want to mention it because we might cover that at some point uh, yes we had talked about that so you know i mean but he's really good in that film too so actually i think there was two monty hellman movies of his that we were going to cover one that has one of my euro favorites fabio testi i think we talked about yeah 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 monty hellman's probably the only other uh, director i can think of who really loved warren oates would use him uh, anytime he got a chance yes so there you go and my score for the film is a solid eight just right, right above yours. Uh, this is a film that uh, I'll agree with uh, what Willie said there. The first time I saw it, I was a little underwhelmed. But I kept going back to it. I don't know why I kept going back to it. Because usually when you're underwhelmed by a film the first time you see it, you won't go back and watch it again for years unless you see it on cable or something. Uh, but I kept coming back to it. Is it the title? Is it the fact that it's Peck and Paul? Is it what me and you said before? You know, we're film fans. Why didn't we like this movie? I'm going to go watch it again. Uh, I don't know what it is. But for some strange reason, I kept going back. And I've went back several times now. And every time I've watched it, uh, I've loved it that much more. So... It's just one of those kind of movies that kind of grows on you. And uh, it is a pessimistic film, don't get me wrong, but uh, it's that great kind of pessimism that if you're a, fin- if you're a film fan, you'll, I think you'll enjoy. And that's yeah. about all I got. So we are in close to agreement again. One of these days, I promise, guys, we will disagree on a film. All right, so <laughs> that's our the- scores, guys, and uh, that's our review of Alfredo Garcia, and we'll be back after this uh, last break here with some feedback. Hello. Testing. <sighs> okay, so... This is Miss Bren, and I just got back. You would think, well, all right. So I was out, I had to get supplies, and I came back, and I don't know where Brother D is. He's gone, and I don't know where to look for him. I just wish I would have watched some more of the zombie movies that he had told me to watch, because maybe then I would know, maybe he's some place, if anybody has any idea where he is, or any suggestions, just let me know, mailorderzombie.com, please. Flower growing wild and free, all I'd want is you to be my sweet honeybee. And if I was a tree growing tall and green, all I'd want is you to shade me and be my leaves. All I want is you. Yeah, that's some heavy stuff right there, baby. 
<laughs> oh, I love that song, man. It's at the beginning of Juno, one of my favorite films from this year. So, yeah, it's a good song. All right, we'll cut that down and break into some feedback here. So we're gonna go some emails. We got a couple of voicemails. I'll go ahead and let you uh, jump into the emails. Okay, so this first one is from the Croc. Hello, gentlemen. I'm Croc, writing to you from Hanover, Germany. I just wanted to tell you guys how much I love your podcast, and it's such a blessing to hear you guys talking about movies every week. I'm a Vietnamese student studying in Germany, and I've been interested in film and cinema for nearly three years now. Uh, and it's Seven Samurai that changed my appreciation of films forever, uh, as yes. with most of us, I'm sure. Uh, you guys are so knowledgeable, and I feel like you're my film teachers. I've learned a lot listening to you, and I hope this show will never stop. To be honest, I listen to a bunch of movie podcasts every week, and The Gentleman's Guide is my favorite one right now. And um, he says, I know I'm just one of thousands of nerds that are kissing your asses now, but I don't think we're nerds and you're not kissing our ass, so that's okay. Um, I pray that you guys, not like some other film podcasters, will never lose interest in talking about movies and stop producing the podcast after a while. Uh, I love listening to you guys talk about movies, then go and watch them and come back and listen to the discussion once again. The replay factor on the show is really great and it helps me to appreciate the movie even more. Uh, that was definitely the case with The Bittersweet Life. I just bought the two-disc edition from Amazon and I intend to watch it many more times. It's a film I will never I would have never noticed if not for your show. Uh, since then, I've watched about 20 Korean films from Park Chan-wook, Kim Ji-woon, Kim Ki-duk, and they're all great. Uh, it says, I love Tale of the Two Sisters, and I've also seen The Good, The Bad, and The Weird, uh, which I really liked. Uh, even though they're in Korean and I don't understand them, uh, they blew my mind. I loved them. I hope you'll cover more Korean flicks and hidden gems like this in the near future. I'm sure, uh, I will certainly orgasm one day if you discuss any of the films of the great Kurosawa. Any film at all, really. Being a student and thousands of miles away from home is really hard sometimes, and listening to your guys makes it a lot easier, especially at this time of year. Uh, I learn English through movies, I learn about other cultures through movies, so please forgive me if my grammar sucks. Anyway, I just want to thank you once again for your excellent work. I wish you guys the best of luck. Bye. Also, it says, P.S., you guys watch TV, right? Just want to ask what your favorite TV shows are recently. Hmm. Um, do you want to answer first, and then I will? Uh, as far as TV shows go, I watch uh, Supernatural, because I think the young guys in it are hot. No. And actually, I just like the show. <laughs> uh, it's a good genre show. Uh, it doesn't get the credit it deserves, and and uh, one of these days, people are going to go back and look at it and be like, wow, why did I never watch this show? Uh, uh, yeah. I watched Lost. Uh, well, I watch quite a bit of stuff. But uh, my newest guilty pleasure, oddly enough, is a new TV show on NBC called Caruso. Something else that he said that was interesting was more Korean films. Well, you know, oddly enough, we talk about Korean films all the time off the air. And we got a lot on the schedule. And you're not the only one that wants us to cover more Korean stuff. So, and don't worry, because uh, between the two of us, Willie's more of a connoisseur of the Korean cinema than I am. And uh, he's going to open my mind to a lot more uh, terrific Korean cinema. We certainly are. Before I actually start babbling, Sammy, anything else you wanted to say to Croc? Or? No, I will say uh, we do appreciate the compliments that we are your favorite podcast. I don't know how knowledgeable we are as much as we're just two movie geeks who uh, have an opportunity to talk and broadcast it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, yeah, first I want to say thanks very much, Croc. Um, uh -huh. We're really touched that uh, you know we can make your your life uh, your transition in Germany from I'm presuming yeah you said Vietnam uh, from Vietnam that much easier. Uh, it's never easy to learn a language. And I think as English speakers we often think English is easy to learn and it's not. So I wouldn't worry about your your grammar. Uh, it was pretty yeah. darn good yeah, uh, to say the least. Uh, you had mentioned uh, before I forget actually, Croc. You being Vietnamese, there's a Vietnamese film uh, I've recently picked up that I've wanted to see for a while. It's called The Rebel. Uh, it was Vietnamese financed. It was made in Vietnam by Vietnamese people. Um, I think uh, Dustin Gwen actually from Twenty One Jump Street's in it. Uh, I think the star 
his last name is also Gwen. Uh, anyway, look it up. Uh, I think, um, was it Dragon Gate? Uh, no, Dragon Dynasty, our favorites, the Weinsteins, released it on their label. So it should be readily available, uh, at least in Region 1. So check that one out. Yeah, I'm sure at some point we'll get to some Kurosawa. I know we're both big fans. There's a lot of his stuff I haven't seen that I would like to cover, as well as the stuff I have seen, which I absolutely adore. I'm sure that's going to come up. And as Sammy said, Korean stuff, certainly. And TV shows, I don't get to watch that much TV other than movies. Yeah. Um, I do watch Lost, although I'm a season behind. I watch football as much as I can. I will say that my guilty play... Oh, I love The Office. That's yeah, definitely... Yeah. Uh, let me add that. I love The Office, too. I forgot about that one. <laughs> yeah, The Office is just gold. I love it. Me and my wife love it. I have really gotten into The F Word and Kitchen Nightmares, Gordon Ramsay's two shows, or two of his shows. Uh, first, I thought he was a pompous asshole until I actually watched the show, and I realized the passion he had for cooking. And gotta say, uh, I'm a big fan of those shows, too. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Uh, let me add one other thing. Uh, I don't know. Do you think I might be an Akira Kurosawa fan with my online handle? Possibly. <laughs> it's it's possible that I might like some Kurosawa. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so thanks again, Croc. Yep. <laughs> Next email, the title is, well, it's from Barbarella, and the title is awesome. It says, Pointer Sisters Rule. <laughs> they do. Uh, hello, Nighters. Or, hello, Nighters. Please, please, please do a Kim Key Duck episode. It would make me do a happy dance. You could even do it in time for February, and it could be a birthday thing. Yes, some romantic movies for Valentine's Day. Bad Guy, The Isle, Time, Bo. Okay, maybe those wouldn't be everyone's idea of a good Valentine movie, but eh, it works. Toodles, Barb. I know we'd, we've talked about doing some Kim Key Duck, and believe me, Barb, we are going to do it. It's just a matter of time, and we got so much on the slate. Um, we're probably at some point going to do Three Iron. I have probably a handful of Kim Key Duck's films, and I'd mentioned to Sammy when we first uh, gave each other a list of stuff we wanted to do that we owned. Three Iron was on there for me. It's it's really outside of what we normally do, but as Sammy and I have said, we're film fans, and quite frankly, uh, we're going to cover whatever we want to cover uh, mm-hmm. because we have faith that you know if people like our show, that means they have similar taste to us. If they have similar tastes, they should dig most of the stuff we cover. Yeah, and I can't wait because I've never seen a Kim Ki Duck film, so don't worry, Barb. We are definitely going to cover some Kim Ki Duck material, and uh, I'd imagine Three Iron's probably going to be the first one because that's definitely on our schedule further down the road, but. Uh, we might slide another one in there. You never know. Sometimes our schedule gets kind of shifted around, like last week with Let the Right One In. But uh, we're definitely, it definitely, Three Iron's definitely on the schedule, and uh, Will's going to turn me on some more uh, Key Duck stuff. So Okay, next one, also from Barbarella. Fuck Twilight. Grrr. <laughs> or grrr. Hello, Nighters. I really, really want to see Let the Right One In, and it's not playing here. Instead, we get two or more screens of... Twilight. Nice. Ugh. Do we really need that? Loved your review. Let the right one in. It only makes me want to see it more. Grrr. <laughs> you don't have to read that part on episode if you don't want to make that sound. I understand. Grrr. <laughs> there you go. We figured why not. Anything for fans? Uh, toodles Barb. Oh, and there's a PS here. This is more for Sammy than myself. Apollonia Vanity Cookies. Ugh. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, we we uh, we toyed behind the scenes and and also on the air too. You can hear me toy with uh, actually t- cutting that out of the scene of the uh, show. I mean, but uh, going back and doing the editing, I got such a laugh out of listening to us giggle like two little schoolgirls after I said it <laughs> that uh, I figured you know you guys might be entertained by it to say the least. <laughs> oh yeah. And it, it would be a good cookie. I mean, of course, I would. Uh, yeah, we're speaking from a man's eat. perspective here. I know, Barb, that probably yes. is, <laughs> doesn't appeal to your womanly. Maybe a Daniel uh, Green uh, George Eastman cookie. <laughs> oh, yeah, now you're talking. That is a beefy cookie. <laughs> that is. Probably smells like red meat. <laughs> Nice. No, what was that? Uh, say, there was something in that email that uh, she said that I was going to mention. Oh, yes. I know one thing I was going to mention. Fuck Twilight. 
Oh, yeah, that's it. That's it. That's it. If you only got it on two screens there, you're lucky because uh, I've had this discussion with Will quite a bit. And Toronto's more of a film town than uh, Louisville, Kentucky is. And I don't know where exactly you are in Texas, Barb, but here, I believe they're in Texas, Naked Eskimo and Bar Bar. I believe that. And here, when Quantum of Solace came out, there's a theater that has. 14 screens and six of the fucking 14 screens are showing quantum of solace and not one of them was showing fucking let the right one in so i feel your pain uh you know, in, in these rural markets like uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and the Midwest and stuff, that's what we get. We get uh, 20 screens of Twilight, and if we're lucky, we can find one theater in, in Bumfuck that's showing a good film. So that's kind and of the unfortunate side like, of Hollywood here. <laughs> hey, if you're going to a town like Bumfuck, you may not need to go to the movies to have a good time. <laughs> that is true. There are some Bumfucks uh, down there. <laughs> yeah, at least you'll have you know extracurricular activities. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. No, but yeah, it's it's it really does suck because I know how passionate Sammy is about films, and I'm lucky to have the uh, the outlet I have being in Toronto. Yep. Um, and I wish she did have more access to uh, good film. But that's what the internet's for, I guess, in terms of being able to order movies and so forth. That helps. Yes, it does. Um, okay. Uh, next one is um, from Kevin. Uh, its title is Love to hear some fantasy reviews Love you guys Love the show Just wanted to make a request Although I know you have A super long list I'd love to hear a show On a couple of fantasy titles I'm a big fantasy I.e. sword and sorcery fan I'd suggest one of my Childhood favorites Called Hawk the Slayer With Jack Palance And John Terry nice. If you haven't seen it You should <laughs> If you played D&D As a kid You'll especially love it oh, man. Second I'd suggest Flesh and Blood With Rudyard Hauer um, You talked a bit About Hauer recently But you didn't mention This one Not really fantasy per se But sword and medieval At least Great movie, and on a side note, I wonder if you've seen Howard's Blood of Heroes, sort of a post-apocalyptic movie. Excellent movie, anyway. If you haven't seen these movies and don't like them or don't want to do them, you can always work with the old standbys. Deathstalker series, Sword and the Sorcerer, Dragon Slayer, Warrior Queen, etc. Nice stuff. Uh, Well, here's what I'll say to that. We do have a Sword and Sandal movie, as I like to call them, or you can call them Sword and Sorcerer. We do have one on the schedule. Uh, We are going to be covering uh, Fulci's uh, Sword and Sandal film known as Conquest, (laughs) just because I've always wanted to talk to somebody about it, and uh, Fulci's always a dodgy conversation anyway because you get people who love him you get people who despise him and then you get people like me who are kind of back and forth with him all the time so uh, i don't know how will feels but i'm pretty sure he's probably back and forth too with fulci because yeah for every good film he's got he's got three bad ones so <laughs> Yeah, uh, but yeah, those sure. other ones are good, uh, good picks too, man. Hawk the Slayer, I love fucking Hawk the Slayer. I haven't seen that in forever, so uh, I can tell you now. After you mentioned that, I am gonna fight to get Hawk the Slayer on the schedule because uh, I think Will would like that one quite a bit. Jack Palance is uh, awesome in that. <laughs> I'd love to see it. I was saying to Sammy, I'd never seen it. I'm familiar with it. Yeah. I think there was some talk from the Mondo guys a while ago mm-hmm. uh, of it. So yeah, I'd be game to cover it at some point. I have to be honest, I'm not the biggest Sword and Sandals fan, and I'm glad Sammy did pick one to kind of mix things up. Um, but he didn't mention. Uh, he didn't mention our childhood favorite, which was uh, Yor. Yor or Krull. But I think we did we talk about that on the show or was it off the air? Uh, I think we talked about Krull off the air. But uh, we've talked about Yor before on the boards of PopSyndicate.com and uh, on the show. Uh, we both love Yor. <laughs> oh, yes, we do with little Reb Brown. Uh, we, yeah, because we, we were stunned that an Antonio Margheriti film uh, got a big push and was played in American theaters. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> amazing yeah, that, that ever happened. I can't even, I still can't fathom that at all. No. But yeah, we're going to be doing some uh, Sword and Sorcery. I like fantasy films. Uh, unfortunately, there's way more bad ones than there are good ones. But hey, you know, we watch Turkish Star Wars. We can do anything. So uh, we'll, we'll get some more Sword and Sorcery going, I promise. All right. So with that being said, we're going to break. We got two voicemails. So I'll go ahead and crack in. That is the end of the emails, right? Yes, sir. Sorry about that. I, uh, <laughs> I had to sneeze, so I took the earphones off so I didn't uh, bang my forehead and break my uh, earphones. 
Yeah, that's nice of you. The, uh, I also want to mention, we did get an email a while back from uh, Mike over Chinstroker versus Punter telling us he loved the show. I just want to push their show again, Chinstroker versus Punter. If you guys want to hear a pretty good show, a couple of Englishmen talking about just one movie at a time, they really go into uh, deep conversations about film. They had a great show a couple weeks back, or maybe it was about a month ago, on Citizen Kane. A uh, really good episode, and uh, they cover all kinds of films. Uh, so, uh, Mike, I appreciate the, uh, the email and stuff, buddy. And we didn't really read it on the air because it wasn't really one of those, but I just want to say, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of your show, and I know Will likes it too, and... Uh, you guys keep up the good work over there at Chinstroker versus Punter. Yeah, and I do want to say, so no one gets sort of soured on it by, by you saying Citizen Kane. As good as Citizen Kane is, some people may think, oh, I don't want to hear Citizen Kane. And you, you brought up a good point. They do cover a lot of stuff. I know they've done Wizard of Oz, Manhunt. Um, they, they do really everything. And if you like a show that goes really in-depth, yeah, definitely check them out. Yeah, very good stuff. They did Shaun of the Dead recently, too, and it was really quite funny. So, good stuff. Uh, okay, so here is the first voicemail from this gentleman who... We need this gentleman to contact us at some point because uh, I believe he was the winner of the uh, December content, so you, can, yeah. you need to contact us. All right, here it goes. Big Willie, the Samurai. Hey, how you guys doing? It's Jay. Uh, first time I've had access to a phone, so I wanted to give you guys a call. I'm probably a little late, uh, but uh, the Turkish Star Wars uh, Deadbeat at Dawn episode, great, great stuff. Uh, you made me really want to check out Turkish Star Wars, no matter how painful it sounded. And uh, I was so glad to hear you guys review Debbie Donna and both enjoy it because truly, when I think of independent filmmaking, that is a beacon for me. I mean, the guy does everything. It's all his own money, you know, all stunts, blah, blah, blah. And I kept waiting for, uh, and finally someone said it, but my favorite part, my make or break moment, is probably, I can't, you know, it's been so long since I've seen it, but it's, uh, I mean, I own an actual copy on VHS, but... Nice don't exactly have a VHS player around right now. Um, but the stuff, I mean, it's towards the end with the car stuff, uh, when he rips the guy's throat out. Oh, my God, genius. I love it, love it, love it. I also love uh, when uh, he breaks the car window with a guy's head, I believe, and you just <laughs> see the guy's head coming towards it and then just a splatter of glass that's obviously thrown in the air for effect. I've used that in a couple student films, uh, <laughs> and it works out great, uh, you know. But, uh, hey, guys, keep up the great work. I am eagerly, eagerly awaiting episode 10, and you guys got to make that uh, list of contents. Uh, contest easier, man, because <laughs> I've got some doozies for you. But man, uh, that that one that one's rough. Woo, rough. <laughs> All right, brothers, uh, keep up the good work, and uh, hopefully I'll talk to you next week. Take it easy. All right, that was the one and only Jay from uh, Lansing, I believe, is what they call him on Cinema Diabolica. I think it's East Lansing. Yeah, East Lansing. To be ge- geographically correct. <laughs> Sound like Jay ran to that phone. Uh, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. <laughs> uh, yeah, we can't wait to hear these doozies you got for us. Uh, you did win the content challenge. I don't know if we even yeah we announced that on the boards. But we didn't say anything on the show, did we? No, we haven't. So yeah, but he did win it. Uh, I think on the boards he goes by Fake Shimp. Am I right? Uh, yes, he and he, I asked him if he was Fake Shimp, and he said I am. In, I am. Uh, act, yes, I am the fakest of the Shimps, or something yeah, to that, or something said, humorous. I am so. indeed the fake, fakest of the Shimps. Yes, exactly. So, so uh, yeah, uh, so we need that. Uh, we need that pretty soon. Actually, uh, I wouldn't. 
mind doing it after next week. Uh, so send that stuff into us quick. Get it in. Yeah, so we can because uh, uh, I know the twenty eighth we're going to be. Oh, we're shooting to do the end of the year spooktacular with uh, the outside the cinema semi diabolica guys. So uh, so we only got two weeks. Yeah. So tr- try and get it in, man, because otherwise it's going to be late. And don't forget, you know, logistics have to come into play here. We need to make sure we can get our hands on it mutually and and all that good stuff. Yeah, and you can get a hold of Turkish Star Wars on Google Video. I don't think it's any secret that uh, some of those Turkish films are available on there. So and let's face it, they had no qualms about ripping off uh, Lucas and friends. If you can so get, I think if I want to get through it, I'd be about. amazed. Yeah, it is a fucking endurance test. <laughs> All right, so then I got this voicemail, which is a very good one, and this voice may sound familiar to you guys, and I will play that now. Hey, it's Alyssa from Big Red Podcast. Hi, guys. Uh, I was calling to tell you I had such a great show. I'm a big fan. Uh, it's weird to listen to it because I'm... I am the secret lady voice of your show. Uh, Anyway, so I was calling about the Pop Syndicate uh, fundraiser for 2008, and I just wanted to let you and your listeners know that um, Deeps and I decided we're not going to give each other holiday gifts this year because we've been together for ever, for a super long time. And I don't know, you guys are married. Like, it's hard to come up with gift ideas after a while, so we decided, hey, why don't we give to charity this year? So we're going to give more money to donors choose and here's the deal it's like let's sweeten the pot we will match donations for the next week um up to 200 bucks so if you put in a buck i'll put in a buck and if somebody puts in 50 bucks i'll put in 50 bucks and when we raise 200 dollars this week we'll throw in 200 bucks that's my plan i hope it works uh it's npr style i heard it on the radio so um yeah that's the thing don't choose is a great organization teachers ask for stuff they know what they need in the classroom to teach their kids they ask for stuff a lot of the stuff is stuff that can be easily reused like microscopes and books and um, supplies like that and I think everybody who knows somebody who's a teacher or who has been in school recently knows like times are tough at schools and there's lots of cutbacks I just read about a guy who's putting ads on his tests so that he can make physical paper copies to distribute to his kids for testing, which is crazy. So, um, yeah, we're helping out a lot of people. And uh, kids, uh, Willie, I think you said kids are little bastards, and they can be. But, you know, our best shot at making them not little bastards is trying to teach them. So, um, all right, I will talk to you guys later. And uh, happy holidays. Bye. Hang on now. Before we get any further, i got to clear up that nasty, nasty rumor. I never said kids are little bastards. I said kids can be so cruel, and I may have called the bully a little bastard. But with that being said, um, yeah, uh, Alyssa, that's great stuff. Um, and, yeah, for those of you that didn't know, she is the golden voice uh, at the beginning of our show. Yeah, I'm going to be actually making my donation, well, within the next couple of days here uh, because, you know, like you said, you really see how passionate Alyssa and Deeps are about this if they're willing to match you dollar for dollar. And it's for a good cause. I mean, it's, yep. uh, as Whitney said, the children are our future. Yeah. Teach the way and I let them grow. The so, I mean, future, future, <laughs> teach the way and let or, I don't know how it goes. Anyway, it's probably better I stopped. Yeah, we both need to um, stop. But, but yeah, uh, guys, uh, on my end, I'm going to be donating the next few days. And if you want to, um, it'd be great if you could at this uh, time of year. Yeah, I know I donated uh, this past weekend, I believe, uh, a little bit of money to it and stuff. So it's very easy. You can go over to our website and uh, click on the widget there. Or you can go to popsyndicate.com and uh, find it over there as well. Uh, Big Red Podcast, uh, if you guys uh, like TV, it's a good TV, a gr- good TV, it's a great TV podcast. Great TV and, uh, show. It's the only TV podcast, podcast I listen to, so there you go. 
It begins yeah, and too. ends with Alyssa Deeps and Derek. So there you go. Exactly. Um, now let's uh, let's tell the listeners, Sammy. Uh, this is PayPal. They pay, they can uh, pay through. Yes, yes, you can do it through PayPal. Uh, there's a couple of different options, but PayPal is the easiest. And the donations are tax deductible for those of you that are curious. Yep. Um, so yeah, I mean, and check it, it gives out. you like, it gives up. you. Uh, I went over there. It gives you like three or four different choices. Not well, three or four, about six or eight different choices of uh, teachers who need some things for their classes and uh, how much money they need and and how far along they are and you can pick and choose which one you want to give to you don't have to give to the same ones that i gave to or that Alyssa gave to uh you can you know whichever one you feel is the most important you know some of them need an lcd projector some of them just need a a copier some of them just need very simple little things and just a little bit of money will help them so anything you guys can do to help uh that's really great i mean this is a season for giving and uh giving to our you know the kids of uh of this country or any country is always a noble thing to do oh yeah and i'm i'm not even an american i'm i'm happy to donate because i mean we're all people and you know some of these high poverty areas it's so important that these kids get off to a good start so I know I'm going to be for what it's worth giving to the uh, the book portion because I'm an avid reader I read a lot as a kid and, yeah. you know whatever whatever tickles your fancy I mean you can donate musically otherwise uh, yeah there's a couple you, of music, you know, there's music. a couple classes that are trying to keep music in their school so uh, that's a noble cause in my opinion because I'm a big music guy so well, there you go whatever pulls your heartstrings exactly and hopefully they take Canadian money <laughs> no I'm just teasing yeah yes yeah, yeah the peso the Canadian peso <laughs> <laughs> a picture of the queen on it uh anyway yeah there is man there is i'm not lying <laughs> oh <laughs> all right so with that being said i'll go into the outro ah yes the sweet sounds of the trinity theme certainly are beautiful beautiful music anyway so we are at the end of uh, another show as we record this it is a marathon but hopefully some editing will fix that if not oh well you just get a lot of content for free how can you complain so yes uh let's go over a couple things make sure to send your emails to midnightcinema gmail.com your voicemails are 206-666-5207 make sure to head over to pop syndicate join up if you don't want to join up you can go over there and read the boards anyway uh pop syndicate.com slash forums or just pop syndicate.com it's a great website in general for pop culture uh, all of our other sister sites are over there, and our closest sisters uh, outside the cinema and cinema diabolic are over there. So make sure you check out those uh, little ladies. Uh, <laughs> uh, also, some other uh, podcasts that uh, are definitely worth uh, are definitely worth recommending checking out. Uh, Destroy the Brain, DestroyTheBrainOnline dot com. Uh, that's uh, Andy. Uh, great show over there. He does one man podcast. Can't I can't ask for any podcast to be that good on one man. I don't know how he does it, but he does a great job for one man. So. Uh, ChinstrokerVersusPunter.com uh, Again, I already talked about those guys. Check out that show. Uh, MondoMovie.com you, you guys probably know about those guys at this point. So That's uh, that. Also, on the print side, Paracinema.net. Make sure to check out that magazine. Uh, check out their website. Uh, I implore you to buy issues because it is a great little independent magazine. And like I say, get on the bus before the bus gets too big because that bus is going to fill up, guys. It's a very good magazine. Oh, yeah. Uh, and also horrorcommentary.com, Sean from Chicago site. We haven't heard from Sean in a while, but Sean, we're still thinking about you, and we're going to get you those uh, interviews, and you can get that published and things. So we will definitely get that to you. Now I will go over what we are going to pick. Well, let me add one last time again. Make sure to check out the donorschoose.org and uh, check out those things. And you can check it out, uh, the widget from our website at uh, ggtmc.libsyn.com. That Libsyn is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, by the way. I never really spell it, but you guys can find it if you Google search. Uh, yes. So next week, we are going to be covering two films. I picked a little Isaac Hayes masterpiece known as Truck Turner, which should be fun. And you picked? 
The Prowler. Ooh. Mr. Savini's effects on display. You wanted to cover it for a long time, and uh, inexplicably, we just got covering other stuff, and I thought, you know what? Let's, uh, let's do it. Let's do The Prowler. All right, guys, so the music's coming to an end, so with that, I will say adios. Adios.